0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day.
2: Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome
3: to the Mary Rose. Uh, We had a little bit of a break um, because there was just because life happens and shit happens and we weren't really in the mood last week, were we? But we are this week uh, because we had um, decided, and Beth is already doing a hideous dance, uh, we have decided that to, I'm saying this in inverted commas, celebrate Valentine's Day. We would debate the most romantic gesture in history. And there is one person in the room that's pleased about this. Aren't you, Beth? I'm so pleased about this. Our I- own resident Disney princess is very excited. If um, I don't, if I don't <laughs> win, the thing is rigged. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Uh, I say, oh, this is, uh, Wendy's back to judge and, uh, Oliver, her dog is making himself known. Um, is that mummy? Look at me. Or is that Benji.
4: That's Benji. Shut up. Benji. <laughs> Benji <sighs> be a gentleman.
5: <laughs> but, uh, I, I think Benji's had enough of Beth already, to be honest.
3: <laughs> uh, ben, Benji we'll be we'll go easy on Benji. He's a foster dog. He's having a tough time. Oh, look at his little face. We'll put a picture of Benji out on the podcast as well. Uh I think there's there's another person here that's um not completely um devoid of any
6: soul. Charlie, how you doing? I'm good, like the Elsa to Beth's Anna. I'm just her slightly grumpy older sister locked in her bedroom, but still, still harbouring romantic, um, thoughts. So, looking forward to tonight.
3: All right, now that we've got that crap out of the way, let's get to all the normal people. <laughs> uh, we have with us, uh, Zach, who's obviously is, is a, a ladies man and a complete romantic, um, and loves every bit of this, don't you?
7: No, I absolutely hate Valentine's Day. It's just another reminder that I've gone through another year in Singletown. So uh, I, I'm not planning to uh, embrace the spirit, shall we say, tonight.
3: Excellent. A little Scrooge in the corner there. We've got Merrin with us. You all right, Merrin? Yes, I'm all right. Are you any less jaded?
8: Um, no, I'm all right. I, I don't mind Valentine's Day. It's a good excuse to buy some decent flowers for myself, isn't it?
3: Yeah, exactly. We've got Kit with us. Uh, kit, you'd be inviting any uh, severed heads back to your hotel room at the weekend? Um, no, <laughs> oh, no, so. no, he's got the severed head with him. All oh, right, okay. Severed head update. So the severed Amelia Clark head kit was bald when you bought it because it cost too much, right? Uh, but right, you've yeah. been putting hair on her, haven't you? I, I have
9: been. <laughs> Don't say it like that. It makes me sound like some weird pervert.
3: Uh, um. There is no way to say it without sounding like a creepy pervert, just so you know.
9: I, I, I have been hearing the, the head, yes.
3: Yeah. <laughs> so she's basically got a ring of hair around it. Can you show everybody? This is brilliant.
9: Well, let, let me, I'm working on it as we speak. Yeah. Yeah, she's, she's currently got... Some...
3: I love it. You're evidently <laughs> working so hard on it as well that you've um, got this whole dishevelled Doc Brown mad scientist look going on. Thanks. You've done that's nothing that's, but that's focus on the severed head for days, have you?
9: Um, <laughs> It has been a project,
0: put it that way.
3: <laughs> we do in lockdown. Clive, have you been with, playing with any severed heads?
0: I've not, actually. That's one thing I've missed out on through lockdown is severed heads.
3: But you you are having you are having a bit of a nightmare today. Uh, your dinner's late.
0: My dinner's late. My broadband keeps collapsing, and I've spent a total of six hours on uh, Zoom calls before this.
3: Oh, first world problems, Clive. First world problems. It wow. is. We've also got. Let's go to someone who's just clearly less fortunate than Clive because he's in Medway. Chris, how are you doing? <laughs>
10: Yeah, I'm I'm doing all right. Um, to carry on the frozen metaphor, I've, I'm I'm going to go with the uh, ginger Prince Hans to uh, Beth's Anna, um, warm and cozy. But I'm going to kill everyone at one point to take this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
3: Oh,
11: I just want to point
3: out for the benefit of everybody who thinks uh, Chris is a raging pedo after hearing that that he has children and that's why he knows the frozen. Yes. <laughs> Otherwise, and
10: all the songs.
3: And. All- <laughs> Yes, you have a daughter, don't you? A beautiful daughter uh, who, yeah. who has an excuse for being as obsessed with it, whereas Beth and Charlie don't. we we'll <laughs> have with it. Dorman, who looks like he's relishing every Disney reference. You're right, Dorman? Um,
2: the only reference I'll be making to Valentine's Day this week is the massacre. <laughs> <laughs> there
3: you go. Zach, Zach is feeling it. Zach is feeling it. Princess isn't here tonight. Princess has got to adult... Um, which uh, is disappointing because we could have heard about he probably would have done Zach's love for his washing machine again. and We've had to endure that. We've also got with us James. you all right, James?
12: Yeah, today's been a good day. Um, I managed to get outside and just walk in the snowfall and it just made me feel a lot better Doing some errands and
3: is that because you live in Birmingham and the gunfire stopped long enough for you to open the front door.
12: <laughs> no, it's because I'm well enough to do it now, and also family are all back home and recovering, so it's yeah, it's a good day. I
3: say, is that why you're wearing your Christmas hat? But that's just an old photo, isn't it? That comes up when you've not got. Your yeah,
12: because <laughs> because I'm on my phone and to save trying to keep the phone steady, I'm just doing voice at the moment.
8: I thought you were just doing a ventriloquist act for a minute. Yeah,
3: <laughs> A very good one. <laughs> uh, we also have with us Kate from
13: Spain. You're right, Kate. I'm very well, thank you. Still cynical, and it's still raining here. It's How
3: just... does it ever stop? Right, this is like this has destroyed all of my preconceptions about Spain. But, so you're oh, in shit. southern Spain as well.
13: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm like mm, ten minutes in the car from Gibraltar, so as far south as you can get, and it has not stopped pissing down for nearly two weeks. Like. So hardly stopped
14: I think that's a metaphor for this sh- the last year isn't it really like everything's supposed <laughs> to be lovely and nice rain <laughs> it's just shit. really disturbing at this point is that
3: uh, Kit has readjusted the head so we're basically watching live Kit do a hairdresser job on a half ball, <laughs> and beautiful world, which is not <laughs> even, like, a bit disturbing right <laughs> Lockie will be with us very soon but Lockie's still at ballet Yes, you heard me right, Lockie is at a ballet class, Uh so yeah, it's to do with someone doing an experiment, yeah, she does, Dorman, look like Svengore and Eriksson with only half a head of hair, uh, yeah, so Lockie will be when he's finished dancing, and Alina will pop in later, she's off recording a couple of other podcasts at the moment, so she'll be back in, Uh and Zach wants to know if Kit does hair transplants on live humans. I tried it, Did but you I'll
14: you give it a go. You could pay a lot of money for that kind of skill. Can you get some ginger <laughs> hair and do Chris?
9: I
3: can do anyone. I could do it. <laughs> we have mentioned our first judge. We have Wendy with oh. a guy from Arizona. You right, Wendy? I'm just fine. The barking is
4: about to begin again. I'm sorry.
3: Oh, is that because <laughs> Oliver's <laughs> arrived and he's going to lay down the smack? With Benji?
4: <sighs> a car went by. What can I oh. tell you? Okay. It's tragic. <laughs> I live on just- a very busy corner. Cars go by quite a lot are you glued to the
3: tv watching the impeachment crap
4: i have not watched a single moment of it i trust my friends to tell me what happened because my stomach is not able to handle that i could end up throwing up on somebody else you know what i mean
3: i mean they get <laughs> hours each right so that's 32 hours of coverage about the human cheeto which i think is a bit much for
4: <laughs> nope
3: and we also have home. So,
4: so Wendy
3: has been married for thirty-one years and still holds. Thirty-three hands. years. Thirty-three years. Yes. Uh, and has still holds hand with her husband, who's lovely, yes. John. Um, he's not there at the moment, but John's awesome. Uh, John has a bromance guy with my mate Charlie, which is quite wonderful to watch them dan- What were they dancing do? Eric Clapton, wonderful tonight on a cruise. Wonderful
4: tonight. Absolutely, American. it's their song now. It is. Yeah. Hands
3: yep. It is their song. It's quite disturbing. Uh, and Holmes. Holmes, who has been with you, has been with your wife or been married for 26 years?
5: With. Mar- married for slightly less, but
9: yeah.
3: <laughs> Clive says, 34 and a half years and I still get told off every day. Is that Tom because... would you say the being,
4: same that, thing. That's
9: because <laughs> you he likes it that way. way. It's, uh,
5: that's because Clive arranges the broadband. She told him <laughs> to go for a different...
3: Oh, ten years in ten years in March for Charlie. Obviously, Beth's married. She's been with John for eight and a half years,
14: and the Redditors are always
3: eighteen. Yeah, the rest of us are bitter and single. And... I was going
5: to say. I mean, surely the obvious conclusion we can take away from all these long relationships is that we're all absolutely rubbish at pulling collectively.
3: <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> yeah. Yeah. everyone else is single. So
2: yeah. uh, the trick is punch above your weight once and then cling
3: you know what I'm going to do as we go around tonight, um you get thirty seconds before you do your pitch to tell the story of your worst ever date, because I think this could be funny. uh because I'm not doing a pitch tonight, I will do mine right i I got set up with this French guy, had to meet him in Wimbledon village. I waited forty five minutes in the wind and the rain, um, and then he walked around the corner. Um, He was like sauntering where he was late. He dragged me to a Lebanese restaurant where he called me a nerd for doing history, uh, took the piss out of my football team, tried to force feed me coriander, which I'm allergic to, um, and then followed me home almost until I just jumped on a bus and ran away. And then rang me the next morning saying, that went really well. Should we do it again? And I was like, "Uh, fuck no, no. No. Um, so that that's one oh and then there have there have been others there have been many others we could do a whole down the pub on this but yeah that's uh that's one of mine um and so let's go to oh let's see the judges quickly because you won't get a chance to do that wendy your worst ever date
4: i went on a date with a guy who um talked about his children and showed me pictures throughout the date and then wanted me to to identify all of the care bears I had no idea. Do you, do you guys know what Care Bears are? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. yeah, now which one is the Care Bear with the cupcake? I'm like, fuck if I know. Birthday, I bear. N-
3: birthday <laughs> <Bear>. <laughs> Beth or Charlie or both will know the answer to that question. Yeah.
4: No, no. Mm-mm. Charlie, that's
3: the answer, don't you?
4: It's Birthday Bear. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
3: Homes, worst ever. seen. Oh, <laughs> oh, you did have a weird French ex, didn't you? <laughs> yeah,
5: I mean, the, the first, all my first dates have been all right. I mean, some have deteriorated faster than others over the years, but the first ones have been all right.
1: Really?
3: Yeah. Wow. Cool. Yeah, I mean,
5: it's not like I've got a vast library to put, choose from, either, and I can remember as
3: well, so. This is true, you are quite old now. And you yeah. I you've been for twenty-six years. Uh you you're epitomising Dorman's uh policy of punch above your weight
4: once and clean. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Dorman, nine years but not married.
2: Yep. Did you met...
3: punch above your weight and cling? Uh
2: yeah, no, so we were we were in school together, but she was in the year ahead of me. But then our school had this genius policy to pair or to divide the years into like Harry Potter houses. Which just led to a lot of cross-year collaborations, shall we say? Um, and I was probably the best product, or I, I benefited most from, from this policy.
3: Um, uh, which house were you in? Uh,
2: they were named after planets. Um, I think I was in Neptune.
3: Oh, that's shit! I was hoping that they really had named them all like Slytherin and stuff.
2: Well, there was five. There was one for each day of the week. Really, it was a ploy by the school to devise a way in which they could force the children to do housekeeping so neptune was monday and then i think mars was tuesday and it went through the various i mean it was either roman gods or planets but one or the other
6: who was in uranus
2: (laughs) amazingly this school full of juveniles didn't opt for uranus and i can't for the life of me figure out why
3: Brilliant. Okay, right. Where should we start? Let's go. All right. Let's go first to uh, Kit's concentrating way too hard on Amelia's ball patch right now for me to disturb him. I'm going to go to Chris first. Chris, first of all, tell us about your worst ever date. Oh,
10: there have been so many of them. I've done a lot of first dates, but not many seconds. Um, I think I'm the bad date. Um, <laughs> Valentine's <laughs> Valentine's Day, 2009, I took my girlfriend to London. Um, we ended, I thought walking up the South Bank would be nice and romantic. We end up in the Clink Prison uh, Museum. Uh, we then hop on a train to go to, um Leicester Square to have dinner. I turn left out of the tube station. We end up in Soho, outside of Triple X Cinema. And then trying to make it funny, he said, Wanna watch a movie? Uh, that did not go well.
13: Yeah. <laughs>
10: But she still married so, me.
3: Somewhere on <laughs> the podcast, there's a woman going, Oh, my worst ever day, right? This guy, he made me go to a fucking prison museum. And then, <laughs> and then he, he said we were going for dinner and he took me to a porno show and tried to make me go to some... <laughs>
10: She still married me. <laughs> <laughs> when
2: I said I love eating out, that's not what I meant. No, no, but... <laughs>
3: Oh, this is going to be one of those nights. Chris, tell us. Today's debate is the most romantic gesture in history. What have you got for us?
10: I'm I'm really odd because everyone would think I'd be into warships and death all the time. But um, uh, one of my I'm I've got a really soft and slushy romantic side. Um, and one of my favourite movies is uh, 500 Days of Summer, in which uh, someone quotes a philosopher who I can't remember. It said, "If you want to get over someone, put them into literature." Which led me to thinking of um, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, one of Germany's greatest writers, along with Schiller, uh, who uh, did just that. At a young age, he became infatuated with uh, a lady, a uh, woman called Charlotte Buff, um, who rejected his advances and instead married a lawyer and archivist called uh, Johann Kestner. Goethe um, was so crushed by this um, that he decided to pour his love and his grief and his sorrow into literature, and so he wrote uh, the masterpiece that is uh, The Sorrows of Young Werther. Uh, the plot revolves around a middle-class man who moves into the countryside, falls in love with the local uh, burgermeister's daughter, uh, the imaginatively t- um, named Lot. Uh, their, their friendship blossoms, and the lad becomes more and more infatuated with her until he finds that she's engaged to Albrecht, who is away on business. Bertha leaves town and uh, gets a job at court, but soon returns after a social faux pas and uh, to the same country village. Uh, by which point, Lott and Albrecht have got married and um, slowly he sees that the world around him is crumbling and all becomes darkness and despair. Um, which... Um, and what, yeah, pretty much, yeah. Um, once where there was light and beauty in the scenery and the lives of the small folk, there is now death and destruction. And eventually he can take it no longer. Having confessed how he feels to her, um, she he is firmly rejected, so he borrows um some uh pistols from Albrecht and promptly blows his brains out. So, why is this romantic? Well Yes. Goethe also once wrote that true love is love that stays constant uh forever, uh whatever its fortune, whether requited, scorned, filled or sent away. Um and this book is also is about his outpouring of love for uh Charlotte above uh, and it has several quotes in it which um, are quite romantic in that for example um never did i dance more lightly i felt myself more than mortal holding the loveliest of creatures in my arms flying with her as rapidly as as a wind till i lost um, sight of every other object i vowed at that moment that the maiden whom i loved for whom i felt the slightest attachment never never should walk with anyone else but me or another example was, I sometimes cannot understand how she can love another, how she dares to love another, when I love nothing in the world so completely, so devotedly as I love her, when I know her, when I know only her and have no other passion. Um, and it's all—it's only a um, way that he could get the um, depth of his feelings and his love for her out, as to put it all onto paper. And the, the dark ending and the killing of, of the main character is um, mainly his way of trying to get over her and to kill that part of his life. Um, and he also said, uh, Goethe himself later said, um, everybody, um, what has was to have a time in his life when he felt as though Werther had been written exclusively for him, which brings me to 2008 um, where, um, uh, which is when I first read Werther, uh suffering from cold feet and uh, questioning all my life choices uh, and whether I should be getting married the following year. Uh, I, I ended up with a massive crush on um, a colleague at work. Uh, I told her how I felt and asked her um, what I should do. And so she quoted one of her favourite movies to me, which was, this path was laid before you, and if you can't find a way, then no one can. So I made my choices and life has happened. And now, 13 years later, I find myself alone, back reading Virta and asking, what ifs? And um, with... Um, uh, with feelings that were suppressed and never completely went away. I'm wanting to kind of paraphrase another movie where I said I may have chosen poorly and then coming for the final one, which is quite possibly my second favourite movie of all time, of, I'm just um, changing it slightly, I'm just a boy podcasting about a girl, asking her to you know, consider me, maybe. But I'm too afraid, frightened to say it in poet person, so I'm just going to do it now.
8: Oh. Oh.
6: We love you, Chris. Chris. Oh, <laughs> old Zach's just been sick
3: in his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Chris, you were lovely. Do you want to say her name? You've given a Valentine's Day card.
10: Um, well, it, it was an anti-Valentine's card. Oh, this could have been the <laughs> other one. Um, we uh, we used to have a uh, celebrate the thirteenth of February for all single people. At the, um, so that we could, uh, be, feel bitter and twisted about things. So, um, I gave her the card today with happy anti Valentine's card, anti Valentine's Day in it. Oh, so it doesn't look too, too serious. Oh, but it's a Yoda one.
3: Oh, Beth's crying already. This is going to be a nightmare.
10: If it helps, Beth, it had Yoda on the front and it said, uh, Yoda best in Yoda, only one for me.
3: <laughs> yes, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Holmes, any questions?
5: I, I'm not quite, quite sure what I'm supposed to be judging there. Really, is it, <laughs> yeah. you know, is it supposed to be like, history's best romantic gesture or something like that?
3: I think Chris yeah, is nominating himself for announcing his love <laughs> on this podcast.
5: I mean, it was no. quite difficult in the first place. So I was trying to phonetically spell all those German names. So I wasn't really concentrating on what he was actually saying. So um, I mean, I think okay, I, we can basically ignore all the German stuff then, because that's just a book that he read. <laughs> He reads occasionally. I mean, I mean, there's a there's a fine line between rom- a romantic gesture and harassment, I suppose. And it's, you know, <laughs> make sure we don't we don't step over that. And the idea of just putting it in a book, like the, the German chap did, Johann Wolfgang von Werther. Did I write that down correctly?
10: Von Goethe. Yeah. Goethe. Goethe. Yeah.
5: Okay. Well, I mean, I'm never going to say it again. But um <laughs> but also, I mean, he's just write that book. I mean, teenagers have written crappy diaries over the years. Recording their feelings and stuff like that. And this is only, uh, it's quite similar to that really, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, he hated
10: it later in life.
5: <laughs> but I mean, I, I i presume if we're judging you, I think it, the difficulty we've got is that you've made the gesture, but we don't know how it's panned out, so it's difficult to assess it.
10: This is true. I'll let you know if I find out.
5: <laughs> <laughs> you get an extra couple of marks for using a Yoda card, although the pun is a bit <laughs> shit and wouldn't be the sort of thing Yoda would say, but nevertheless. Wendy. He wouldn't say it, would he? He would not say
13: it
4: like that. <laughs> that was wonderful. That was a story within a story within a story. Um, I I come from a town in upstate New York that has such literary class to it that um, they had a street named after Goethe, but in Binghamton mm. it's called Goethe <laughs> because nobody in Binghamton knows how to speak German. Um <laughs> I I thought that was a delightful story. Um, I love Gerda, and uh I don't like romantic gestures that end with pistols, um, and <laughs> I can't wait to see what happens next with Chris.
3: Yeah. <laughs> We're going to have to get like a weekly update, aren't we? I'm glad yes. Wendy said
5: pistols then, because I wondered where that was going, to be honest. <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs> also, I don't know about you, but here we celebrate on January are on February 15th, because that's when the chocolate goes on half price. Yes, that's a good idea. (laughs) Amen. Right, okay, good
3: start. Let's find out. I'm more interested in everyone's um, first date horror stories now. Let's go to... Let's go to James.
12: (laughs) Oh, worst date. Oh, God, this this is going to take some doing because i'm trying to remember
3: I'm trying to remember the, the one... last time you had a date
12: <laughs> <laughs> yeah partly um it was probably the one of them with my ex god bless her um it's she'd come back for graduation and it was a freezing cold night and we decided to go to this place and we get there and it turns out because her train had been delayed and she'd got there late, the place had shut. So then we were trying to rush around and find this restaurant in the freezing cold. We walked up a cliff and in the end we had to sell the hotel restaurant to try and have a dinner together. But of course, because it was her graduation, her parents were there in the hotel and her parents were there. And the dad couldn't speak a word of English. Uh, the mom could. And I got on well with the mum, but it was just like getting stared by daggers across a the table. They're trying to eat this meal, trying to have a day with my ex with the parents across the room. And it's like, oh, God. Oh <laughs> that sort God. Of thing, it did not make the graduation next day any easier. <laughs> that's for sure. So Jay, but, um,
3: tell us your romantic gesture.
12: Okay, this is one that stuck with me and I decided to settle on it. I judged it against the all the ones I looked at. I judged it against the gesture my dad did from my my mom uh, on their wedding day where he changed his name so she could keep her name as part of her last name. because She only had sisters. However, the gesture I've gone for is a paratrooper during World War Two. He was a lieutenant at the time, and he jumped in on D-Day. He then fought through the entire war with his girlfriend slash fiance at home. And it was not until near the end of the war that someone realized that he was wearing his reserve shoes and his reserve shoe from D-Day. So he carried this thing throughout the whole war with him. And someone questioned, well, why are you doing that? And he said, I'm keeping it for my fiance. and. No one really questioned it until the end of the war when he goes back and he goes to marry her and he gives her the reserve chute because the parachute is made of silk. And silk at the time, especially in a time of rationing, was quite rare. So he'd kept this reserve chute throughout the whole war, multiple jumps, some of the worst conditions possible, including bastone, a promotion, wounding and everything. And he gave her this reserve chute so she could make A wedding dress of her own design out of it, because that's how much he loved her. And he managed to keep it from being nicked, destroyed, you name it. And that person was Captain Harry Welsh, obviously, of Easy Company, 506th Regiment, 101st Airborne. And he married Kitty Grogan as soon as he got home.
3: He did, but Rick Warden played him in Band of Brothers, um, and he was on our reunions, and Rick was lovely. But then he went and played some really perverted serial killer in something on Netflix, and now I can't look at him the same. And in turn, I can't look at Harry Wells without shuddering.
12: Oh no. <laughs> Which has
3: kind of ruined the effect for me because Rick was so convincing of being a, a horrible, creepy pervert. Uh, Wendy, any questions on this? As you heard this story before about Langdon's. I have never heard this story
4: um frankly don't hate me this made me just a tiny bit weepy that was a lovely story I liked that very much he's <laughs> kind of cool the way he
3: did it isn't it um, yes, yes. And Holmes did it make but, you weepy oh sorry Wendy
4: go on. I also loved the story about James's parents by the way about his dad changing his name that was lovely too See, Wendy's mm-hmm. just
3: gonna love all of these, isn't it? This is why Beth. Right, it's gonna be, it's Do you gonna know be what, bad. as soon as she heard you were judging, Beth was like, yes, I'm gonna win, because she's so ultra-competitive. <laughs> um...
4: well, <laughs> she because... yeah. I just like oh, to
6: beat that was... Matt. That's all I, that's all I live for, just beating Matt.
3: Holmes, <laughs> <laughs> were you moved to tears?
5: I wouldn't say I went that far, to be honest. I mean, on the, it's, a, it's a romantic gesture on the one hand, and it's also theft of government property on the other, isn't
8: it? It's <laughs> the <Sister laughs> lawyer, yeah. I can, I can
5: see it. <laughs> I, uh, I, I can sort of relate to it once, because we got my wife's engagement ring from from Ypres, Ages, ages ago, and basically we'd been there the week before, and then I was going back with Johnny about two weeks later, so we went into the shop on a little strata the week before got her finger measured and then I collected it two weeks later when I went back um but I had to carry it around in a rucksack when you're going in and out of cemeteries lying down taking photos and stuff like that it was terrifying the responsibility it was like having the ring in Lord of the Ring I was paranoid <laughs> I was going to lose it it wasn't insured but in the end it came home
13: <laughs>
3: only you homes I love the way you say that, like, lying on the floor, taking pictures of headstones, as if it's totally normal. But in our world, it is... Very normal. Very normal. Let normal if you don't. Yeah, true.
5: I, I did do once, I was on my own at Perth China Wall Cemetery, and I was sort of rolling up and down an entire row and grunting and doing everything else, as I do when I take photos of my age. And it was only when I got up afterwards to realise I was like a family group. It was like visiting a grave for the first time behind me that I was completely oblivious to. And I must have keep rolling in front of them and stuff. And they're all trying to do these little speeches. But they seemed all right
3: about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, at least hopefully for them, they didn't run into one of those French school parties that likes to take selfies on the uh, cross of sacrifice at Tynecott um, whilst pulling fish pouts and stuff,
7: uh, yeah.
3: which... That can take would... a while. Yeah, they can oh, take no. about three hours waiting for them to get out of the way. Uh Let's go. Uh, who should we laugh at next? First date wise or bad date wise? Let's do. Let's do Clive. Thirty-four years married, Clive.
0: So um, yeah, was I was eighteen ninety. I'm, well, sums ain't that good. I have to dredge back in my memory because it's a hell of a long time ago that I went on dates. I do when I can just about remember, was when I was at university, I encountered this American girl who was really very stunning looking. And I resolved to find out exactly who she was and what she was studying. I found out a friend was doing the same course as her, managed to get myself introduced, got her on a date. And then the date revolved around her telling me two things. One was that she was shagging her lecturer. And secondly, that she thought I would be a marvellous brother rather than anything else. So that rather ended quickly and was a bit of a disappointment. Okay, you
5: your own back, Clive, by saying you were shagging the lecturer as well.
0: He <laughs> was <laughs> studying English. One well, doesn't shag English lecturers, surely.
3: Clive, romantic gestures. What have you gone for?
0: Okay, all aboard the love boat. I don't often talk about boaty things, but when it comes to great romantic gestures, one has to leave shore and head for the high seas. For it was there, afloat upon the salty brine, that Captain Mm Chetino showed what he would do to impress the attractive and delightful 25-year-old Dominica Semortan, his paramour. His gesture was bigger and more costly than any other we will hear about this evening, $2 billion, 32 or 33 lives, and 64 non-fatal injuries, was the price that Francesco Schettino is alleged to have paid to turn the head of the young ballet dancer from Moldovia, who was half his age. A single mother, she was and is a very attractive young lady, and her profession as a dancer no doubt kept her in good shape. Who could blame the ageing seafarer? Who could blame the young Moldovian when she attracted the attention of the old salty dog who she described as like a god on the ship. Theirs was a romance destined to occur and occur it did. The couple met at sea in December 2011. He was the handsome captain and she was the young multilingual tour organiser. They began their relationship the next month after Captain Francesco bombarded her with phone calls and emails. They sailed together again the next month This time romantically entwined, she would sneak into his cabin at 2 a.m. for secret prompts, just hours before the good captain had to be on duty. I would make my way to his cabin in the middle of the night. It was all very secretive. I had to make sure no one saw me. She admits she was captivated by him and told how they kissed for the first time in his office. She later said, I don't think anyone ever saw me leave his cabin, but people were certainly gossiping about us. Dominica was understandably upset at being called the blonde siren who seduced the captain. There, of course, was an affair of the heart, but an affair of the heart that was destined to cause death, destruction and injury, and to send the the captain to jail for a 16-year stretch. On the fateful day, 13th January 2012, the Costa Concordia set sail from Civitavecchia in Tuscany with 3206 passengers and 1023 crew members on board. Captain Schettino was in command. Dominica was on board, not as a member of the crew, but as his guest. Her luggage was stored in his cabin. It's not clear exactly what happened on the fateful evening. Evidence is contradictory. One story, however, has emerged. It may be idle speculation, but it has more than a ring of truth. The captain and Dominica, doesn't that sound like the name of a 1970s act off top of the box, were on the bridge. He was not wearing his glasses. She watched as he manoeuvred his massive hull, impressed by the displacement that it caused. He bathed in her adoring glances and determined to show her what he could do with his craft. Sailing through the channel between Isola del Giglio, Giglio in the Tyrrhenian Sea and the Tuscan coast, he switched off the alarms that would have warned a more cautious navigator about rocks and reefs that lay below the dark surface of the sea. Instead of following the ordained route down the centre of the channel, he headed close to the island. Later, he said that his manoeuvre was designed to pay homage to the island and a retired commander living there, give passengers another experience, and do a favour for the maître d' who was from G- Gigliolio. But we can all imagine that he was really showing young Dominica the grace and ease with which he could insert his sizeable vessel into a tight channel, and that really is where everything went wrong. The ship hit a reef. It was 9.45 in the evening. The passengers were in the dining room, having dinner, and Celine Dion's Titanic theme song, My Heart Will Go On, was playing. They heard a loud bang, which they were told was an electrical malfa- malfunction and nothing to worry about. Well, I told the guests everything was okay and under control, and we tried to stop them panicking, a cabin steward recalled. The ship lost cable... Cabin electrical power, shortly after the initial collision, which at least meant that that dreadful song would have come to an end. The boat started shaking. The noise. There was panic, like in a film. Dishes crashing to the floor. People running, falling down the stairs, and saying, GATSOR, said a survivor. Those on board of the ship suddenly tilted to the port side. Passengers were later advised to put on their life jackets. The boat drifted closer to the shore for the next 25 minutes as the crew tried to steer the injured vessel into Giglio Porto. At 10.12, the ship alerted the shore that a problem had occurred at 10.22. The captain first told the port that the ship had taken on water and asked for a tug. At 10.25, he ordered dinner. Eventually, an hour after the collision, the port authorities were informed what had happened, and the evacuation order was given five minutes later. Bearing little heed to the Maxim Women and Children First, the captain, cruelly nicknamed Captain Coward, decided he would be best placed to oversee the rescue efforts from the safety of shore and got the fuck off the boat. This did not impress the Coast Guard and the heated exchange over the phone as the good captain was in a lifeboat. The captain of the Coast Guard repeatedly ordered chattino to return to the ship from his lifeboat and take charge of the ongoing passenger evacuation. At one point on the call, Coast Guard Captain Del DeFalco grew angry at Shitino's stalling that he raised his voice and told him Fada a border translated as get the fuck back on board or get back on board for fuck's sake, or perhaps more politely, get on board, damn it, depending on the source. Despite this, Shigino never returned to the ship from the lifeboat into which he claimed he had fallen. There was considerable bravery that night. The evacuation was eventually completed at 4.46am, but a search for the missing continued for weeks. 32 passengers and crew and well salvage crew uh, one salvage crew died. Their bodies were recovered over the next 18 months. Lloyds of London awarded seafarers of year accolade, recognising the best professional sailing and ship to the Costa Concordia crew for their exemplary behaviour during the shipwreck, which saved most of the, passengers, the ship's passengers. Dominica assisted the rescue. She spoke five languages and spent her time trying to calm and direct passengers. She was eventually ordered to leave and made it to a lifeboat into safety. Francesco. Did not hang around long enough to check whether she was safe. He was arrested. Initially, she denied their relationship despite her luggage being found in his cabin. In a genteel understatement, she said, oh, I think we would probably have ended up in bed eventually, but I found I would never found out because of the crash. Ultimately, when cross-examined in court, Dominica admitted the affair. She always pleaded Frances- uh, Francesco's innocence and tried to protect his reputation. Before his sentencing, she said, I pray he doesn't go to jail. I feel so sorry for him. I love him, and it's not right to destroy his reputation. Everyone is hammering him. Francesco, the man who was labelled as the most hated man in Italy, was tried for manslaughter and dereliction of duty and sentenced to 16 years in prison. He appealed twice, and each time the court, unlike Dominica, rejected his appeal. He is serving his time in a prison in Rome. It's not known whether Dominica ever goes to visit him. She did receive compensation of around 30,000 euros, which is rather nice. Francesco's romantic Jessica was on a scale that is beyond compare. It's said that there is no greater gift that can any man give than to lay down his life for his friends. Well, this man laid down 33 other people's lives and some $2 billion for his one special friend. Perhaps we owe the last words to Dominica who is still pretty and on Instagram. LinkedIn tells us she now lives in London, where she has recently gained a diploma as a translator. I'm talked about as an easy girl, the blonde slut who distracted the captain and caused the crash. It's so wrong. I'm not some little tart. Yes, true love story. A great and flawed romantic gesture. I suspect she would have preferred a bunch of flowers. (laughs)
8: <laughs> well done, Clive.
0: There's rows of applause
3: the room. I yeah. love Cockney masterpiece. Theatre is back. Poor Merrin who <laughs> speaks fluent Italian, just her look <laughs> on her face for most. Of that was one of sheer horror. Mm-hmm.
8: Uh, it was excellent. <laughs> score out of ten <laughs> for Clive's Italian. Um, um three point four, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> higher than he was expecting.
3: I'm hurt. <laughs> <coughs> Holmes. Romantic or just a wanker?
5: Um, the latter, obviously. <laughs> I mean, it, it's not even... Surely a romantic gesture is something out of the norm anyway, a surprise, something you don't normally... All this bloke did was, like, take his missus to work, really. It's like... Oh, come on. My missus is going <laughs> to love it tonight. I'm going
0: I'm to sit down with her and go through this contract I've been looking at all day. Oh, come on. Come on. La- ladies on here, how many of you have had a chap take you out and ram his craft into the rocks <laughs> just for you. <laughs> I, I could oh,
3: slightly there, was, there were some funny, funny comments going on in the chat. Uh, Holmes, you go ahead. I'll see if I can find I,
5: one. I could slightly get it if she didn't work on the ship and it was the first time she'd have been on it. It would have had it'd been more persuasive then, but she worked on it. I mean, you, kept referring, you started off by saying she was a ballet dancer, but then you kept referring to her as a tour operator.
0: She was trained as a ballet dancer, but she was working on the ship as a tour operator, apparently, kind of organising the excursions and stuff like that, because she spoke five languages.
5: I think also we, we don't want to set a precedent here by encouraging people to take to make romantic gestures that end up in the loss of people's lives as well, really. It'd feel wrong. Uh-oh.
0: But surely that is what, where <laughs> romance really comes in. <laughs> You can have romance without killing people, surely.
13: (laughs) Really?
4: (laughs) Wendy, can you have romance without slaughtering people? Uh, boy, I hope so. um uh, I think this is the least romantic story that I have ever heard. Um, I think he was drunk and stupid and wasn't wearing his glasses and was trying to show off for all and sundry and I think the most romantic gesture out of this story was her testifying on his behalf um after all of this carnage
3: <laughs> i'm just I'm thinking of our of Giorgio, our little cruise captain. Um, and just how we would have reacted if he had rammed, I can't even remember the name of the boat we were on now, if he'd have rammed it into an island, uh, in the name of, in the name of, uh, that hideous looking woman, um, from the Israeli oh the Woody I Allen woman. Impressed. I wouldn't have been like, wow, what a romantic gesture. I'd have pitched well, it. Would, it would have depended on the quantity of gin. And their gin was pretty savage, to be fair. It was. Mainstream. It was. Yeah, but we drank it anyway because there was no. <laughs> <laughs> so we have no standards. No. <laughs> yeah, oh, I, I I can't say I'm sold on it, but I love the way you told it. I it thought- was an excellent.
4: I thought her accent was was really the the crowning glory of your story.
0: There there are, there are clips of her on YouTube speaking.
4: <laughs> now I have to look them up. <laughs>
3: Right. Okay. Let's. Oh, so we had in the chat. We had Kit saying Clive does a stale semen, <laughs> and Kate said it's not the size of the liner; it's the motion of the ocean, or something like that. Apparently, <laughs> let's to Kate next in Spain. Uh, one, so she can uh, try and talk herself out of that one. Two, so she can tell us about her worst day ever. And three, so she can tell us what gesture she's gone for.
13: Okay. So, um that's just something I heard. I've no idea, honestly. <laughs> but just apparently apparently that, that's how it is. I, I don't know. I'm very innocent. Um, so that's me getting out of that worst date ever. Oh my god. There haven't been very many, so I didn't have a wide pool of first dates to choose from. But um probably the one that would top them. I did I did go through a little phase where I was quite desperate and lonely, and um, I did dip my toe into the dirty, stagnant pool of online dating. I met a few guys who were just fine, but there were no sparks, and then I met this one guy who, it turned out, it was in the police, um, and he spent, well, first of all, we met, and then he was like, yeah, let's go to Pizza Hut, um, great, okay, <laughs> Were you then, 12? Um, <laughs> no 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 it was actually only a few years ago this was in Gibraltar so if anyone in Gibraltar is listening he is one of the RGP feel free to um take the piss out of him for what follows um he then uh we we went to Pizza Hut and didn't drink and had the pizza that he wanted and he basically spent the whole time telling me how great he was and more or less suggesting I should do better and then telling me how um he was probably going to get rid of his dog um, because it kept chewing his tanks up when he left it at home all day. So as somebody who loves dogs and has lots of them and fosters them and rescues them and all sorts, this just wasn't happening. So anyway, then the bill came, and he suggested we split it half and half, which I am all for splitting bills half and half, but I'm always offer to pay, and I always expect the other person to offer to pay, and then we say, no, 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 we'll split it half and half. No, no, he was straight out with, um, yeah, so you're half, and he added it up. What I've heard. Oh, so, yeah. No, no. <laughs> yeah so then so then just to, so that was fine and we left and I said listen there this isn't happening so let you know let's save each other the bother because it's not happening in the years life but the crowning glory of this was that I applied to join the police back along a few years ago and when I went to do my physical uh, test Instead of finding my lovely, lovely, encouraging friend, who I was expecting to find running the business, it was him. So I just turned around and walked away. <laughs> yeah. So I just turned around and walked away. I took one look at him and went, oh, God, and left. <laughs> and, and... Yeah. Ew. It was awful. Mm.
3: But anyway, tell us about a romantic gesture that gives you hope.
13: Honestly, I think we can all understand that when I heard this week's theme, I was more than a little sceptical. I've never been much of a romantic, obviously. And as I hurtle towards 40 with not one significant other on the rapidly diminishing horizon, I think I can confidently call myself an unromantic pragmatist. I did consider rehashing my Indian cyclist because that was a really romantic thing to do. But I thought, well, Without much hope, I thought I'd at least look for something new. uh, To my surprise, it didn't take much. Quick Google search, and I found all sorts of extravagant tales of over-the-top displays of affection. Stories of dinner for two in an empty sports stadium. Awkward. What makes it worse is they watched Titanic on the stadium's huge screen afterwards. Just the two of them. So weird. So very weird. There were giant tombs (laughs) and roses delivered to graves. Grand gestures, but a bit late. When I die, don't come to my grave to tell me how much you love me. Those are the words I want to hear while I'm still alive. So far, nothing was helping my cynicism. Then I read about a $105,000 gift. Picture the scene, if you will. Valentine's morning, a couple in love, breakfast in bed, maybe some flowers. And a gift. She rips off the cute pink paper, hoping for something thoughtful, personal. And she finds a toilet seat, admittedly a bejeweled toilet seat, encrusted with diamonds, rubies and sapphires, but really? A $105,000 loo seat? Anyway, there are tales as well of the world's most valuable diamonds and private islands. just all feels a bit showy, an ostentatious display of wealth and power rather than love or romance. I was softened a little by stories of abdicating kings and hundreds of roses seemingly falling from the heavens over Brigitte Bardot's villa. I thought that was wonderful. And so it seems this is no longer the story of history's greatest romantic gesture, but rather a Disney-esque tale of how a sceptical 30-something who can't pull a hamstring, let alone a fella, was convinced that true love really does exist. It turns out I'm just another Cinderella who hasn't met her Prince Charming yet. The story which really softened my cold heart was Richard Wagner's birthday gift to his wife Cosima. Christmas Day, 1870, the morning of her 33rd birthday, she was awoken by the beautiful sounds of the opening melody of a symphonic poem that Wagner had composed especially for her as a surprise birthday gift after the birth of their son Siegfried the previous year. So he arranged everything in secret. 13 members of the Tunnel Orchestra came to their home in the early hours of Christmas morning, and in silence, they set up on the stairs. The conductor had learned to play the trumpet just so that he could play the small part, it was only 13 bars, in his private performance of Siegfried's idyll. He repeatedly sailed out to the middle of Lake Lucerne so he could practice without being heard. Wagner had intended the idyll to remain a private piece, but after eight years, he expanded the orchestration and sold the score to a publisher due to financial pressure. The original title of the piece was Trübschen Idil with Fiddy's birdsong and the orange sunrise as symphonic birthday greetings, presented to his Cosima by her Richard. Fiddy was their nickname for Siegfried, their son. Trübschen was her home, and the birdsong and sunrise relate to events of personal significance to the couple. These and other musical references, many of whose meaning remained unknown for years, reveal the Idil's level of intimate significance for both Wagner and Cosima. It just sounds like something out of a Disney film. Many of us grew up on knights in trying armour and grand romantic gestures. And honestly, Wagner set the bar pretty high when it comes to grand gestures, if you ask me. So for every guy who picks up a box of supermarket brand chocolates when he's doing his weekly shop, or buys the last wilted bunch of flowers from the petrol station on his way home on the 14th of February, you don't have to compose a symphony, but you can do better than
4: that. I think it's an absolutely lovely gesture. Um, I was actually doing some research to see which one I would have chosen. um, Mm. And that was certainly a contender um, in the one. Uh, Although also having lived in Germany, I heard some rumors about Wagner's relationship with King Ludwig. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Um, Like there were rooms in Neuschwanstein castle that were devoted to him and there was a bedroom that they shared. So um that's all i'll say about wagner and his other dealings but that i think yeah. that this is an enormously romantic gesture
13: yeah he wasn't i i looked him up and i <laughs> i hesitated that made me hesitate as to whether to, to choose him or not um but i figured that we're looking for a romantic gesture which that yeah. was but And do have to be perfect i did i yeah. yeah yeah that was my hope <laughs> it, it, yes
4: Yes, this I I completely agree. This was an enormously romantic gesture. Home, so you moved.
5: Uh, I, I quite like that one, actually. I quite like that one. Do we know? Uh, you, Kate, okay, you said that the, it, he sold it after eight years. Do we know it under a different name? Have we heard it?
13: Um, Siegfried. It was it was called Siegfried's Idyll, and the music does form part of the opera.
4: Oh, the Valkyrie, the opera isn't it? I don't know.
13: Oh, I'm not sure. Is, is the opera called Siegfried? I'm not sure. I don't know. But anyway, um, yeah, so the piece itself for chamber music, for for a chamber orchestra, is um, Siegfried's Idyll, is what it's known as. And it did form part, he put did put part of it into an opera as well.
5: Um, I'm, I don't know it myself. I imagine it's probably quite a quiet piece, because they wouldn't be able to... Sneak in kettle drums and cymbals and set them up on the stairs in the middle of the night to try and surprise
13: me. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> no, it's 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 mostly wind instruments. There's a small part for a trumpet, oboe, and then I think it's string instruments if I remember correctly. Thirteen people in total to play it, but he expanded it to sell it to make it kind of more generally appealing.
3: Excellent. I really like that one. Actually, I thought I, I know Dorman's put in a thing as well. He is he is a shitty um, anti-Semitic person uh which is but we are looking for a romantic gesture and it was a romantic gesture um by a wanker Is what you're saying
13: (laughs) yeah i mean when when the world's biggest wanker comes up maybe he can be a contender for that too
3: yeah although uh, on on this occasion um,
13: yeah (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, even wankers love their wives sometimes (laughs) yeah you know even even horrible people can be romantic and fabulous yes
3: Wendy, you need to put that on a T-shirt. <laughs> Even wankers love their wives. Even.
1: <laughs>
3: <Yeah>. <laughs> I reckon you'll sell. With little flower.
4: Valentine flowers,
3: a heart, heart sign, it'll be lovely. Yeah. Right, okay. I think it's time that we refilled our glasses and then we'll be back to look at some more romantic gestures.
13: <laughs> oh, If you could
3: have been a fly on the wall on our break, you would have seen Kit trying on the Amelia Clark half bald weird, plastic head thing um, and looking completely normal. Uh, <laughs> I promise not to take any screenshots. I'm just going to say now, if nobody else in this room took a screenshot, you're all dead to me.
13: Obviously, <laughs> I did. I'll send it to you later.
3: Wendy was clearly in too much shock. I mean, she dropped her phone. I it was, just, it was <laughs> like a Blair Witch shake, and a, <laughs> of, a shot of some dogs on a sofa as she collapsed. Um, you rock on there, Kit. I think you're about nine thousand hairs in and nine thousand to go, right? Roughly?
9: Something, something like that, yeah.
3: Are you going to do all the plats and everything?
9: Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know how to plait hair. I need to find someone who's willing to plait my severed head. I, th-
3: I think your mum's had enough of the severed head.
9: My mum wants nothing to do with this. She's <laughs> like, just keep it out of my house. I, she, the severed head is banned from mentions, you know, yes. Like...
3: I love the way she'll keep your tortoise in her fridge, but she won't touch the severed head.
9: She, she, won't, she won't even let me order things from Amazon um, so that I can sort of, you know, um, when I'm on a lockdown trip to sort of help her fix things, I can pick them up. You know, I, I basically she's like, I don't want anything to do this.
3: <laughs> Brilliant. I love it. It's going to be one day the police will come to the door and she'll just go, oh, I can't lie to you. scenic seen it coming. <laughs> <laughs> right, OK. <laughs> it is not a real severed head It's made of plastic Just for people wondering uh, Kit is not a sociopath That we know of
9: That you know of
3: That we know of, yeah uh, But then, let's face it No one in this room is normal Lockie's joined us He's fresh out of ballet And we're disappointed We said we'd be mortified If you didn't show up Wearing a fluffy pink headband And a tutu Oh
8: tights Tights, we want to see you in tights Oh, the
3: camera's moving yeah.
1: Yeah, no, I've got I've got my short shorts on. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, oh, it's Lockie, he's, on...
3: he's out first. On.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's ballet for rugby players. So, uh, and
3: uh, it's not ballet. It's not easy, is it, Lockie?
1: It is not. My calves are burning mm. Um because I've got a <laughs> I've got a very high weight to power ratio. <laughs> uh, I love so, the way that you're um, rewarding yourself with a beer.
3: Okay, we are back. Uh, we have finished laughing at Kit and his severed head, and we are going to go look at some more romantic gestures. But first of all, let's find out about the worst date that Merrin has ever been on.
8: Oh, worst date was probably my first. I'm a fast learner, but um, when I was quite young, the young man and I should shall we say, gone out for a walk. I'm not that naive. And I've worked out there might be nefarious intentions involved. We'd gone for a walk across a Norfolk field, down the side of a Norfolk hedge, and we'd we sort of come across a dilapidated Norfolk pillbox and we went inside. And in retrospect, I suppose all he wanted to do was pucker up and get on with the kissing thing, but all I wanted to do was find something to measure the aperture, dig around for empty shelf cases and ramble on about how many of the home guards would demand it at the weekend. It sort of went down there. there. <laughs> oh, so
3: much like Chris, you were the one <laughs> freaking the other person out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he thought he was going to cop a feel and he just uh, basically unleashed it. No, room, you know. like, oh, look
8: at this, look at this. No, I just, I just lost it. Yeah, interest. you
3: can't show a girl concrete bunker porn and then expect her to be yeah. focused on <laughs> anything else, can you? Uh, Meryn, tell us, uh, you said just is quite short. Tell us about the most romantic gesture.
8: The most romantic gesture that I have ever heard of. I am going to nominate an idealistic, tall young man who was living in Rome and before any of you lot leap to conclusions, this is nothing to do with Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the North, general of the Phoenix legions, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and loyal servant to the true Emperor <laughs> of No, my hero is the simple son of a simple centurion, although come to think of it, his name is also Maximus. Um, and it's a centurion who'd had a brief, and it has to be said, initially domineering, but then rather submissive affair, with a good, hard-working, commercially-minded Jewish woman um, named Cohen. So this young man, let's get a bit of context. It's about 30 AD, Rome is very well established, Civilization, on the whole is developing well, although there are several factious, bickering, separatist movements in Rome at this time, various expressions of Judaism, many incredibly similar, and these factions seem to spend more time fighting each other than the Romans, which appeals to him, he's quite rebellious. So young Master Cohen, the son of Maximus, friend of friends, he's quite impressionable, dressed in his best toga while attending a rather clandestine meeting with one of the groups that takes place at a low-key version of the Roman Games, our hero falls in love with a young woman. And it was a woman. There were other more worldly men there who'd already started to explore the opportunities for transition and make their statements about the right to transition. But our hero falls head over heels in love, with a young woman who he only meets fleetingly, a woman whose family name is Iscariot, and a woman who may or may not have been a spy, but a woman who is totally dedicated to ensuring whichever anti-imperialist group she represents reflects a divergence of interest within its power base. And this sense of populism appeals to our young hero. So to impress her, the hero decides to make a political statement, one that will meet the needs of the leader of the political faction that they are both aspiring to represent. And what he does is in the middle of the night, wanting to oppress this young girl, he leaves his mother's house where he is living and he takes a can of red paint and a paintbrush to the centre of Rome, to the governor's house, and there many, many times in letters several feet high, and although he should have been using the vocative plural of anus, which is ani, and the imperative rather than the third person plural, present indicative of the word aint, he takes his life in his hands, quite literally, knowing that this act might culminate in the ultimate sacrifice – but to impress the populist faction that he wants to join. Our hero, Brian Cohen, born in a stable next to the Messiah, son of Mandy Cohen, the part-time Washington, part time prostitute, roughest, toughest centurion, friend of biggest diggers, the absconding, naughtiest Maximus, our hero to win the hand of Judith Iscariot, daubs the immortal words that will lead to his gruesome and somewhat bizarre community crucifixion on the side of a hillside in Rome, and he daubs Romanus, ite Domin Romans, they must go home.
6: Oh
3: <laughs> well done. Holmes. Romantic or bonkers?
5: <laughs> I started I I wrote about the first four I wrote about four fifths of that down before I suddenly realised where that was going. So uh <laughs> it, it, it's 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 good, but it's fictional, yeah? It's not based on any reality.
8: You say that! You say that. All these stories are based on fact, my friend. <laughs>
3: The internet doesn't lie, is Merrin's defence. And yeah. <laughs> short notice. Uh, child, Roman Roman. Is this not the life of Brian? People called Romans, they go in the house. Not
6: the Messiah, he's a very naughty boy. He's
8: not the Messiah, he's a very naughty
6: boy. <laughs> Wendy.
4: I kind of wanted to know about the grisly, weird crucifixion on a hillside, but that's just sort of how I roll. (laughs) That's how everyone in this room rolls. Everyone's more
6: interested in
3: that. Holmes is now going, oh, my God, copyright, copyright. (laughs) Fair usage, Holmes, fair usage. It was about four seconds. Will we get away with it? Just quickly
5: talk about what you heard and what the themes and stuff that you heard in it, and why you liked
3: it. We <laughs> yeah. love it because Monty Python's legendary. You should go out and buy the DVD. Does that work?
5: Mm. <laughs> no, it's a common mistake. People thinking chicken a promo one at the end sort of gets you off the hook.
3: Oh, does it not? No. Oh well.
5: You're supposed Wait. to give a credit as well if you want to get really tedious. So you need to credit the composer and the record label. There you go. Oh God. I've not helped if someone from either the publisher or the record label
1: listens to this, have I, really?
8: Not really, no. The no. Python
1: <laughs> Eric Idle is a massive fan of our, of our podcast, actually, it has to be said.
3: Oh, Hi, Eric. It's just a song by Monty Python. So all of the Monty Python team, you're legends. Oh, songwriters, Eric Idle. You legend who penned that four seconds worth that we just heard. Uh, <laughs> copyright universal, musics publishing group, BMG rights management, all rights reserved. Okay. Moving on. Is that all right, Holmes? Will that do? Yeah.
5: We'll see you this time next week. Yeah. See what comes in the post.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I just like, as soon as I saw that, I was like, is Eric Idle not involved in some epic copyright battle with someone? He really is, isn't he? I- I've not
5: heard of it, but uh, he could
3: have. Well. But I didn't get Whatever. <laughs> whatever. Her hand slipped onto the play button. Uh, Right, let's move move on quickly. Two, I want to know about the worst date that Dorman's ever been on. Although it sounds like Dorman's been with his girlfriend since he was 12, so it's not going to be that entertaining.
2: Pretty much. Um, I mean, I don't even know where to... Well, obviously the beginning it wasn't great because I was young and inexperienced and, uh, again, punching way above my weight. So I was desperate. Um, My lowest hour probably came on day one, though, where we went to see the film Tower Heist. And I was trying to describe it to her prior. And I couldn't remember the name of um, the actor who played one of the characters in it. All I could remember was the color of his skin, which led to me in probably louder than an indoor voice exclaiming as the opening credits went on that's the black guy um (laughs) the fact we're still together is nothing short of a miracle uh yeah that was my worst ever date i think again me not her
3: uh the amount of these that turns um turns out that you're actually still with the person or they ended up marrying you. Uh gives me some hope for the future. Um, Dorman, most romantic gesture ever.
2: So I'm very, still despite my long-term relationship, very much on team cynicism here. Um, and I was going to do the romantic connection between Bullets and JFK's head, but I thought <laughs> that wasn't <case-less. laughs> Um So I opted for something semi-serious, sort of. Uh, Romantic gesture, romantic action, however you want to put it. I think one thing that's common throughout all of these, that these are one party performing it for the other. And truly a genuine romantic action or the most romantic gesture should involve both parties. And what if that gesture was undertaken 300 times and also includes a bit of military history? So, I put to you that the, st- the story of the Theban sacred band, an ancient brotherhood of 150 gay couples who were the hardest fighting sons of bitches in the Peloponnese, is the most romantic thing or gesture in history. So, to begin with, I'd like to quote Plato. It's the only time I'm ever, ever going to do this, but however. <laughs> um, and if there were only some way of contriving that a state or an army should be made up of lovers and their beloved. Their beloved. They would be the very best governors of their own city, abstaining from all dishonor and emulating one another in honor. And when fighting at each other's side, although a mere handful, they would overcome the world. For what lover would not choose rather than to be seen by all mankind than by his beloved, either when abandoning his post or throwing away his arms? He would be ready to die a thousand deaths rather than endure this, or who would desert his beloved or fail him in the hour of danger and that quote kind of sums up the military history of this group so they were founded in the city of thebes in and around 324 bc though they may have existed before that and they're based very much on this plato principle which suggested that love being the most powerful force in the world and if you militarize it you can overcome any obstacle in their way and thebes at that point were in serious need of military help the greek peninsula is in the midst of the peloponnesian war A civil war ostensibly between Athens and Sparta, but had gotten to the point of involving every city-state in Greece. The Spartans, as you can probably expect, are all conquering on the battlefield, and Thebes knew that something had to be done. So they took this idea and applied it, and they recruited 150 gay couples. They maintained the number at 300 throughout their career, and what probably would have been a much more exciting movie than the actual 300 released later. Uh, recruits enlisted, or enlisted rather in pairs as teams finished their training around the age of 21 and were expected to provide nine years of service. And these men put their lives on the line again and again and again in the Peloponnesian War. They were deployed as shock troops. The idea was they would take the fight to the heart of the enemy, dispatch the leader in the crucible of melee, And they were really fucking good at it. So... They fronted the Theban uh, force at the Battle of Tigeria, and this is the first time the Spartans are ever defeated in the open field. Later on at the Battle of Leuctra, they are key linchpin in the Theban strategy, which manages to defeat the Spartans in one of their worst military defeats in that city-state's history. And keeping with the romantic theme, for any story to be considered great, it has to end in tragedy. So in 338 BC, a Macedonian king called Philip and his son Alexander the yet-to-be-named Great invaded Greece and Thebes and the Sacred Band marched to war. They met Philip the, at the Battle of Chaeronea, where Philip's new modern Macedonian army completely annihilated the old-fashioned, redundant Greek army. The Sacred <laughs> Band, as Plato had said, they fought to the bitter end. Every single one of them were killed and when Philip II saw those bodies and realized what he had done, he is said to have wept. So you can keep, you know, your buildings built for people or your breaking from churches or boat crashings or what have you. But in my opinion, 150 couples fighting alongside their partner for the sake of love and for the defense of their city, kicking the shit out of Greeks aren't with nothing but spears. I mean, how more how more romantic can you get?
13: You know what?
3: I expected you to crap all over this tonight, and I think you've pulled it out of the bag completely with that one because you've done something completely different. And do you know how I know that you've done really well? Because Beth looks like she's sucking a lemon. Right now. <laughs> <I bet.
9: laughs>
4: she sees competition. Wendy, what do you make of that one? That was amazing, and I don't know how I've lived this long without ever knowing that story, although I'm not a historian like the rest of you, that was an amazing story. I loved that. I really love it as well. Holmes, what
3: about you?
5: No, I thought that was good. That was really persuasive. And it sort of makes sense if you sort of think about it a little bit as well, which makes it slightly odd that the British Army didn't allow gay men to enlist until the year 2000. You know, might who knows what could have been achieved had that ban, you know, not existed.
3: World War II would have been over in six months.
5: (laughs) <laughs>
3: that's it, yeah, yeah. No, I really like that one. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> Beth looks so pissed off. I love it. I'm uh, gonna, okay, no, I'm gonna keep, I'm gonna keep her on tent hooks because I know she's just waiting to uh, blow you all away with her. Oh, do you want to go next? No, go on, crack on,
14: someone else. You, you're just getting me more and more drunk. So,
3: I oh, do no, Let's leave her till last because that's always time <laughs> for the rest of us. Do you know where I'm going to go next? Because someone who I thought was going to be a cynic, has just blown us away with what I think is a serious fucking contender. I'm, I'm going to go to a cynic that's not going to let me down right now. Zach!
7: Right. I'm guessing you want the worst date, first of all, yes. do you? See, my worst date isn't so much a date as a date that I worked very hard to avoid. I was pursued... Except the Hogwarts and... letter, Zach. They want you in. <laughs> <laughs> See, I believe the Hogwarts letter, that's a completely different I Someone sent you a
3: Hogwarts letter? No, no, oh, no. Right, okay, that, just that was it. just a joke. Sorry. Just checking. You do kind of look like Harry
7: I look like a 12-year-old as well, so it fits on, on many levels. Uh, yeah, so I was pursued, and the word really is pursued, by a colleague who wasn't able to accept the fact that a failure from me to respond to any of her advances was a gentle hint that I wasn't actually interested. And it got to the point where at my leaving due, she'd widely declared her intention to quote, corner me. My mates therefore decided that the best solution to this was to tag team chaperoning me throughout that evening. And this resulted in my boss telling the manager of another department to quote, just fuck off. Because when he got into an argument with this guy, he didn't feel that he could walk away because he was busy acting as my sheepdog against this woman. So uh, that's that's my contender
2: for the worst.
8: <laughs> I okay, don't do and on exactly.
2: that Zach, <laughs> you cannot say that I look 12 and then follow with I was pursued. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
7: Someone,
3: Did you work in the BBC? in the morning, aren't they?
7: <laughs> it wasn't in the BBC, no. <laughs>
3: You tree can stand down. Right, tell us the most romantic gesture ever.
7: Uh, see, as you probably predicted, I'm going rogue tonight. I've been quite kind of encouraged by the level of cynicism in the room, but I'm I'm turning from pub thief to the rebel without a cause. Actually, no, that's not true. I'm the rebel with a cause because this one is for all those people out there for whom Valentine's Day is just another depressing reminder of the fact that you're lonely and single. And that the only creatures on the planet which love you unconditionally are your pets and maybe your parents. I get the idea of love, I understand the principles of romance, like most things in my life I'm great with the theory but shit in practice. I appreciate why people would want to invest in the excitement and the gooiness, but the trouble with humans is that there's usually an ulterior motive and most romantic gestures are based on the fact that someone wants to get laid. Feel free to call me a cynic. I'll class it as realistic. And so tonight, to break up this lovey-dovey stuff, I'm going to bring you a selection of the things that you thought were romantic, but which in reality really weren't. In other words, I'm here to ruin the party. Let's start with the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Said to have been built in Babylon, funnily enough, by King Nebuchadnezzar II, sometime around 600 BC or slightly after, Surely there's nothing more romantic than building one of the seven wonders of the ancient world simply because your wife is missing her green homeland of Medea. There's just one small problem with this great gesture of affection, care and concern. The evidence that it ever existed is slim at best. Archaeologists have found no trace of the gardens. Most of the ancient texts referring to the gardens are based on a single source or sources that have long been lost to us and therefore can't be corroborated. There's no mention of the gardens in the comparatively detailed records of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. We have plenty of inscriptions from his reign and there's nothing there. There is a more fundamental flaw, however. Amiitis, I've probably done a horrendous job of the pronunciation there, the lady Nebuchadnezzar built these mythical gardens for, there's no record of her ever having been his wife, although in fairness we don't know about any of his wives. So if they did ever exist, she wasn't important enough For him to give her any kind of meaningful record in posterity, he was just prepared to plant a garden for her. Keeping with the theme of elaborate gestures, how about divorcing your spouse, changing your religion and your country's religion in order to be with the person you love? Romantic, right? Devoted? Well, you can guess where this is going. Enter Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn. We all know how well that ended. Unable to have a male heir with his wife, Catherine of Aragon, Henry VIII did the classic and blamed it all on the woman in his life. Why not? Anne is thought to have been partly responsible for the break with Rome by introducing him to a heretical text. She was up for marrying him because she wanted to be queen. Henry was up for it because he wanted, well, considering that she was young, glamorous and he needed a male heir, you can probably guess what he wanted. So what happened to Love's young dream? Well, most people know the rhyme divorce, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. Catherine was divorced and became queen. She was already visibly pregnant by that point. But Elizabeth I was, well, the clue's in the name, a girl. That wasn't good enough for Henry, so he reverted to form and blamed the woman in his life, became convinced that the marriage was cursed. By 1536, three years into this marriage, Henry had got bored. Her intelligence and quick wit, although desirable in a mistress, weren't desired of a queen. And Henry's wandering eye turned to Jane Seymour. Charges of incest and adultery emerged uh, in relation to Anne, probably spurious, and she was executed. But hey, young love and all that. What about the great mausoleum of love, the Taj Mahal, which thousands of people flock to every year? Built by Mughal Emperor Shah Jahan, it commemorates his wife Mumtaz Mahal in a splendid and iconic piece of architecture that has stood for over 400 years. Unfortunately, as you dig a little deeper, problems start to emerge. Mum Taz Mahal died due to complications following the birth of a child, her 14th child. I'm just going to say that again, her 14th child. Now, it's a widely known fact that men are to blame for pregnancy. They're often told this during the birth. And with the exception of Jesus, no one has ever claimed to be the product of an immaculate conception. So the building of the Taj Mahal may have been at least partially down to guilt. There's another problem. Jahan didn't just have one wife. He had eight others besides Mahal. In 1607, he became engaged to Mahal, marrying her five years later. She died in 1631. Bear that date in mind, because in December 1609, he married Kandahari Begum, and in September 1617, he married Unisa Begum. So whatever connection did exist between Jahan and Mahal, It clearly wasn't all-consuming. What about the love letters, though? These great demonstrations of romance? Well, Napoleon's love letters are said to have been amongst the most romantic ever written, ignoring the fact that Josephine wasn't smitten by Napoleon and continued with her lovers immediately after marrying him, and ignoring the fact that Napoleon did a Henry VIII and divorced her when it became clear that she wasn't going to give him a male heir. Let's look at a selection of his comments. First quote. I don't love you. Not at all. On the contrary, I detest you. You're a naughty, gawky, foolish slut. I don't think I need to add anything there. (laughs) I hope before long to crush you in my arms and cover you with a million kisses burning as though beneath the equator. I'm going to be honest with you. That just sounds like an abusive relationship. Your tears rob me of reason and inflame my blood. Believe me, it is not in my power to have a single thought which is not of thee or I wish I could not reveal to thee. Needy much? Keeping with this theme, a kiss on your heart and one much lower down. Much lower. He's barely got a foot fetish. I could go on. Edward VIII abdicating the throne for Wallace Simpson, except that she wasn't really interested. Richard Burton presenting Elizabeth Taylor with a 68-carat diamond that he haggled relentlessly over and was worth five times what he paid. But I'm going to leave you with a line from Napoleon that goes back to my issue with romantic gestures and how they're often made by people who think they're on a promise. Napoleon is alleged to have once written to Josephine, don't bathe, I'm coming home. Basically the 19th century equivalent of I want to sniff your B.O., babe. If the height of romance, the very pinnacle of loved-up remarks, amounts to I want to smell your whiffy pits, I think I'd rather be single.
3: (laughs) Oh my god, first of all, half the people still to go in this room want you dead, uh, for <laughs> reasons that will become apparent. Uh, Best face of the picture. One of them is seven foot tall and wants to kick your ass just uh, like <laughs> we're going to South East London anytime soon, because that is an angry ballet dancing rugby player right there. Um, <laughs> I love you that seriously. There's nothing to judge, really. Uh, I just have to say my total appreciation for your complete cynicism there and shitting all over Best Parade, which is hilarious. Uh, because now I've got to try and argue the other way, which is going to be immensely entertaining. Uh, Wendy, has he succeeded in, in getting any of that cynicism driven into you? No. <laughs> is it all still rainbows and puppy dogs in Wendyland?
4: Don't forget the unicorns. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
3: uh although you got a you got a preach with the whole Wallace Simpson thing, uh, which I banned everyone from talking about so I don't lose my access at Winter Castle. Holmes, any more yeah. Simpsons I, I don't think we
5: can really count that because it wasn't really in the spirit of the evening. I mean a couple of It things, wasn't,
3: but... but do you feel better now, Zach?
7: Oh much better.
3: Okay. I,
5: mean, I, I, I think uh, blaming you know, I don't think you, can, you can't You can pay everyone with the same brush as Napoleon, for a start. <laughs> Once you get in a relationship, you don't automatically phone up your partner and tell her not to wash because you're going home. Just be That's like, that, a, that <laughs> illusion. And then Charles Jahan, he might have had a number of wives, but culturally that's, that was allowed at the time. Yes. Also, Thank that you. Might, might have been his favourite one. He might have loved her far more than anyone else.
7: But if I'm he loved her really more than why, more than anyone else, why wasn't she enough?
5: Well, I mean, I've got like 500 Star Wars figures upstairs, and my prototype <laughs> Fett is far... I appreciate that far more than any of my others.
7: Yes, but presumably you don't make... I mean, I don't want to make assumptions here, but presumably you don't make love to the plastic. Not anymore, no. I'm, 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 <laughs> I'm getting to the age where I'm thinking about resale
5: value, so... Uh... <laughs>
3: I have to say, though, that psychologically, if we just pause for a moment here, why wasn't she enough, Zach? Off? Does that mean, that that deep down you're really hoping that there is uh, some level of uh, gushiness waiting for you?
7: Oh, no, it's just any excuse to argue the case.
3: OK, right.
5: It could be that he's got his fingers crossed for his seventh wife when he eventually gets round to it.
7: Seventh washing machine. <laughs> yeah, all that.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Ready to pop the question?
11: That's stamps.com. Code program.
3: Oh, there is nowhere else in this room I'd rather go right now than to Lockie. Hi. (laughs) Look at that angry face. First (laughs) of all, tell us about your worst day ever.
0: Oh,
1: to be honest, there's not too many. I mean, yeah, I guess flying my girlfriend out to venice only for the the period between me booking the tickets and her actually coming out her stopping being my girlfriend but her coming anyway um and also in that intervening period of a few weeks i I'd, I'd met a, a sort of student out in italy that i i liked i was living in italy that was that was the point so she was coming out to to see me and um
3: you'd already I'd, moved
1: on yeah or well, kind of but i, I, I you know she she kept I still kind of wanted to see her as well, so it was that kind of it's a real kind of car crash coming in the distance and you can see it coming and you can do nothing about it sort of moment when uh she scuffers things completely with girl out in Italy who I quite liked whilst also you know it being completely dreadful while she's out in Italy with me, but m- me being how old was I twenty or you know
8: Venice dude. Finished. And as
3: someone who's worked with many, many twenty-year-old men in uh, the bar industry, I'm going to ask you now: Did you at least get laid by one of them? Yes. There you go.
5: I think think that's the the, the nub of this here. Locky's sort of telling this story in a confused manner, like he can't quite work out why this happened. But basically, you had two lots on a
3: plate. That's what you
1: want. (laughs) (laughs) One, technically, what? Yeah, it was. it was It was a difficult time.
3: And that, regardless <laughs> of that, you still got laid. Uh, so all's well that ends well for a twenty-year-old bloke. Uh, tell us why Zach is a wanker. Zach's
1: a twat. Zach's <laughs> a dick. And I, I, you know, this always oh, he's, he's run away. I think he, yeah, he's,
3: he's, not, he's, not <laughs> he's pissed chance. on Charlie's parade and Beth's and yours, and then legged it.
1: Yeah. Oh no, it's really nice. So um, what Zach's saying is that absence of evidence is evidence of absence. So what you know, what sort of shite historian are you? um you know i'm talking about the hanging gardens of babylon and the reason i'm talking about it is because you know i haven't just picked up wikipedia today to to shit on something okay <laughs> um i you know one of i do quite a bit of work in the british museum guiding around there and the mesopotamia section is absolutely wonderful there is everything uh in there and you've got uh, a huge amount of records uh, discovered. Trouble is, most of it comes from the period before um, uh, the, the Hanging Gardens were purported to have been built by Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, okay, so, and, and the great, um, record keeper of the day was Ashurbanipal, a uh, great king of Assyria, and his, his stuff in the British Museum is wonderful, and he, they effectively created the first library of all world knowledge in, in inverted commas. Um, and, you know, there's, there's, I think historians do accept there were, you know, some great ha- hanging gardens, some great kind of layered gardens, or tiered gardens, I think is probably the best description for it the question is where not if um it's, it's unlikely to have been on the site of babylon and babylon was leveled and raised so many times smashed up um
3: and then they finally put the nail in the coffin by building a motorway for it
1: well yeah i mean I, the mesopotamian stuff it's i mean it's so plausible as well I mean, the fact that you've got <laughs> um, all of kind of life in in the british you've got some really fun stuff you've got the you know the, the earliest known board game there you've got the earliest known complaint uh in the world uh which is this kind of little cuneiform clay tablet where someone's moaning about the, the wrong delivery of copper or, or or something you know it's hilarious the fact that they've actually put this in writing um but there were definitely ornate gardens built by kings um, uh, Sennacherib uh, built built some at Nineveh, and there's you know the stone reliefs of those, and so they you know this was not an otherworldly thing to have been built, but these ones were believed to be particularly ornate. The, the earliest known source for us is, is Barossus, this Babylonian priest um, who was writing a bit later, uh, to be fair, but before the, the the gardens were purported to have been knocked down, so about about 290 BC, whereas Nebuchadnezzar uh, was in the sort of late 500s BC, uh, he was king. So a couple of hundred years um, difference. What were they described as? Um, I mean, this tiered kind of garden set up purportedly for his wife, Anitis, um, who was from a, a, a green hilly kind of part of the world uh, and it was to, to make her happy I mean what a what a nice thing something a bit like home um, to to cheer the wife up all right kings can do these things kings can create wonderful um, gestures like this they have the resources to which is a bit not fair on the rest of us but you know today's not the most fair thing is it it's its greatest gesture so a little piece of home yeah uh, created in Terrain that doesn't fit it, rerouting water supplies to make it happen. Um, and it's huge as well. I and mean, it's the size of Buckingham Palace, um, 400 feet by 400 feet by 80 feet tall. Cool, they reckon. This is a big old thing uh, that was put together. It is believed to exist. I don't think there's too much doubt that it did exist, really. There are plenty of sources that say that it did. The question is where, the question is how big. So it's just a detailed thing. Uh, to be honest, um, the the account in this p- palace, he erected very high walls supported by stone pillars and by planting what was called a, uh, <laughs> erecting, um, what was called a pensile paradise and replenishing it uh, with all sorts of trees. He rendered the prospect an exact remblance of a mountainous country. This he did to gratify his queen uh, because she had been brought up in media and was fond of a mountainous situation. Um, well, lovely, isn't it? Um so piss off Zach this is a lovely thing and no one cares how grumpy <laughs> uh, you are one of the seven wonders of the world created out of a gesture of romance beat that
3: I think what he's saying is have a wank you sad bastard oh. <laughs> <laughs> I say that just as Zach's got a mouthful of food and has no uh, comeback look at him trying to chew his way through it so he can say something <laughs> Anything? I uh, big mouth
11: eat. full
12: of food as well. <laughs> you Just up? use your fingers to say what you want. I Zach,
7: think I know what Zach's drinking. I, yes. I take what he said about evidence of absence and absence of evidence, etc., etc. But the point is that they weren't, as far as we are aware, there were, as you said, other examples of the hanging guns. The point is that they weren't built by Nebuchadnezzar. We've never found any evidence of hanging guns at Babylon. There's simply evidence of hanging gardens built by other people, which may or may not have been falsely attributed to be the hanging gardens of Babylon. Is that right? Well, no, because all those, you know, that we've, we've found evidence of, as in kind of
1: structural things or, you know, in reliefs, all, they all um, predate um, not only Nebuchadnezzar, but they predate um, the, the great library um, of Ashurbanipal, um, which details... Quite a lot of these things. So my point is, it's going to come after that, um, which Nebuchadnezzar does. Oh, and, so, uh, and so, and so, and so, the sources that the sources that follow, and we don't have a great record keeper like that great library uh, that was done since then. And so, we're looking at Greek and Roman scholars really for evidence of that, and that's what we have.
7: They're not you're know, not exactly contemporaneous, but they do exist. Sure, but this was the point that I made, and I'm, the only reason I'm querying this is because I'm genuinely interested now. And best going fuck off, but actually, I'm genuinely interested from a historical perspective here. When it comes to Nebuchadnezzar's reign, my understanding is there's a fair amount of detail about stuff that he did, but that the Hanging Gardens aren't referencing that. Is that fair? Yeah, I think it could be. It's it's not. I know it's not
1: held by a by a contemporaneous source. Um, so, and, and and Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, there's not nothing left of of his reign. Um, but we ain't got that.
5: I, I like the fact we've been doing this for 11 months and only now Zach wants to look at something from a historical perspective.
1: Yeah, no, <laughs> as, soon as, it, as soon as it's my ter- turn to tell a nice story, it's, um, we're... Yeah, yeah look,
3: he's like, why can't we just fucking all, like, cuddle mine out? Why has it got to be me that has to prove it? Uh, more importantly, Wendy is reclining with her arm behind her head and Kit says, is she waiting for someone to draw her like one of their French girls?
4: yes. actually i was was just cringing because an ambulance went by and i was waiting for the three dog howling symphony to occur but it did not very good boys Um, there
3: are bonus points with judge wendy if anyone does draw her like kate winslet in titanic
4: (laughs) (laughs) okay am i talking yeah um I like this story even you know when I studied archaeology we talked about the hanging gardens and we all believed that they existed um there's all sorts of things that we believe existed and I like the story better because Nebuchadnezzar did not brag about it ah. he just did it and he did it if uh, assuming he did it he he made that for her while she was still alive which I think is is so much more romantic than something after you're dead oh that look at Beth's face <laughs> Sorry,
3: Beth. It's <laughs> all falling apart in front of her eyes. She was so smug this morning about how she was gonna win. Holmes.
5: Yeah, I, I think Lockie suffered a little bit there because he was, was sort of directly responding to Zach. So I think there was sort of there was sort of the romance element was somewhat missing in the way he delivered that. It sounded like someone who was defending a construction project that had overrun a little bit, to be honest. Um <laughs> Uh, which I think is a is a shame. I mean, I, I, I'm ignoring what Jack, what Zach said before, anyway. But um, I mean, there, are, there
1: there must be doesn't sound like uh, you are.
5: Well, no, I am. There, there, but there must have been lo- countless examples over history of privileged people, kings, noblemen, etc., building gardens to impress partners.
1: On Were that many of the of the world.
5: <laughs> well, I, I haven't looked at all of them, obviously, because the records don't exist. We've already established that,
3: but. Right, I'm gonna go to okay, <laughs> just because they like a
14: whole world is crumbling. Beth, Alex, I go yeah. now. I need to just compose myself because you know what, Zach has never seen. I know James got a little bit of the brunt on um Shag Marry Kill, but no one has really ever seen full angry Yam Yam Beth. Zach may just today, Zach may. Um, so I will crack on with, uh, with what I was going to do, which I was, as you say, Alex, I was really, really pleased with it until Zach came along and rained on my parade. Just you wait, Zach, until we get to meet each other in person. Just you wait. Mate, if Marcus has got a cupcake in the
3: face, I dread to think what you're going to get when we finally all meet up. I am going to say, you, you may be scared now.
14: of seven foot Lockie, but you should be scared of five foot four angry yum Yam Beth, really. Really. hello Beth. First of all, have you had any
3: shit dates? Seeing as you met John when you were so young, no, Ugh.
14: I haven't. John and I started going out when I was eighteen, and yeah, <laughs> like I wasn't. I went to I went to a girls' school. I went to a Catholic girls' school of all things, so I didn't know any boys or anything. And when I did, they all wanted to talk to my friends who were skinnier, taller, and blonder than me. So. I was left alone, probably. <laughs> and then I met John.
3: So, yeah. Thanks. Okay, but tell us why. Right. Taj Mahal is the most romantic I gesture. The like,
14: whole paragraph prepared and I was, oh, Zach, I hate you. <laughs> 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 okay, right. Oh, come on, I'll pull myself together. Right. With Valentine's Day around the corner, romantics around the world are preparing themselves for the most loved up day of the year. A day filled with sentimentality and affection, something that we all crave, although I know that there are some people present, who I'm going to not name now, um, who are positively dubious about the whole day. It's a day that's usually filled with romantic gestures, which can mean many different things to different people. For some, it may be being surprised with flowers for no particular reason. It may be taking the kids out of the house on the Saturday morning so you can sleep in after a long week at work. It may be being treated to your favourite chocolate bar or a favourite sweet treat that you've been craving all week. It could even be proposing to your loved one in their most favourite place in the world. And these gestures can happen at any point with ranging levels of spontaneity and planning. However, whilst these are all very lovely, they do not measure up to what is, in my opinion, the most romantic gesture in history. A gesture which took 22 years, 21,000 craftsmen, and 1,000 elephants to complete. If you had not already guessed, as has already been ruined by other people, I've chosen the building of the Taj Mahal by the Shah Jahan. The Shah was born in 1592 in Lahore, in modern-day Pakistan, and he was the third son of Prince Salim and Princess Jagat Gosani. As a child, he received a broad education befitting his status as a Mughal Prince which included martial training and exposure to a wide variety of arts, poetry, and classical music. When he it was in 19... Oh, Zach, you've completely thrown me off my <laughs> You've really fucked her up. Oh, it really has. Right, okay. In 1607, he became engaged to Arjumund Banu Begum, who's better known as Mumtaz Mahal. And Mumtaz was remarkable at the time in the field of learning, she was a talented and cultured young lady. She was well-versed in Arabic and Persian and she could compose the poems in the latter. And she was reputed to have such a wonderful character, a woman of modesty and straightforward, but really self-confident. And they were 14 and 15 when they were engaged, which was not uncommon if we look throughout history for those of a certain standing for them to become engaged young. They got married five years later on a date that had been specially selected by court astrologers as being the most conducive to ensuring a happy marriage. And the marriage was a happy one. The Shah was devoted to his wife. After their wedding celebrations, he gave her the title Mumtaz Mahal, which means the exalted one of the palace. And upon his accession to the throne in 1629, he designated her as his chief empress along with many titles, including Queen of the World, Queen of the Age, and Queen of the Hindustan. And by all accounts, he was extremely taken with her. He showed little interest in exercising his polygamous rights with his two other wives, other than dutifully siring a single child with each. And according to the official court chronicler, Mutamid Khan, the relationships with his other wives had nothing more than the status of marriage, The intimacy, deep affection, attention and favour which Shah Jahan had for Mumtaz exceeded what he felt for his other wives in all of the ways imaginable. Likewise, the court historian commented that Shah's whole delight was centred on the illustrious lady Mumtaz to such an extent that he did not feel towards the others one thousandth part of the affection he did for her. And during her lifetime, poets would extol her beauty, grace and compassion. Yes, she had 14 pregnancies, but surely if they wanted to bang each other that much, that much show how much they uh, appreciated each other. In their... She got pregnant 14 times and he had eight other wives. He must have been a machine. Yeah, yeah, they were married for 19 years and they had 14 children, which, as again, is not uncommon for the time.
6: You know, that
5: um, was a massive child support scam. <laughs> <laughs>
14: And even being pregnant, so 14 pregnancies over a span of 19 years, so she would have spent a heck of a lot of time pregnant. She did travel with his entourage throughout his early military campaigns and the subsequent father that he had carried out against his own father. She consulted him in both private matters and matters of the state, and she served as a close, confident, and trusted advisor. So she's not just a wife, she's not just an ornament, She is someone trusted and regarded in high esteem. At her intercession and her intervention, he would forgive enemies and commute death sentences. And his trust in her was so much that he gave her the highest honour of the land, his imperial seal, which validated imperial decrees. So he basically gave her the same power that he had to pass decrees. Oh, Princess has joined us. Um, You only just noticed, he's been sitting there... Hung you hanging on your every word for about five oh, years. I knew someone would think. <laughs> so she you was You
15: just saw my seal impression as well.
14: I did. <laughs> she was his constant companion <laughs> and trusted confidant, leading court historians to go to unheard lengths to document the intimate and sometimes erotic relationship the couple enjoyed. Yes. Mumtad dies at the age of 38 of a postpartum hemorrhage, which caused considerable blood loss after a painful labour of 30 hours. Contemporary historians note that their eldest daughter, Princess Jahanara, was so distressed by her mother's pain that she just started to distribute gems to the poor, hoping for divine intervention. And Shah Jahan was noted as being paralysed with grief before she passed away. Contemporary court, court chroniclers paid an unusual amount of attention to her death and his grief at her demise. In the immediate aftermath, the emperor was reportedly inconsolable and went into secluded mourning for a year. When he appeared again, his hair had turned white, his back was bent and his face was worn. She, where she was laid to rest was a place called Zainabad and that was never intended to be her final resting spot. As a result, she was disinterred in December 1631 and transported in a golden casket back to Agra, back to the location that would eventually become what is known as the Taj Mahal. And the Taj Mahal is seen as an embodiment of undying love and matrimonial devotion. Um, An English poet from the Victorian era who travelled around this part of India, Sir Edwin Arnold, describes it as not a piece of architecture as other buildings are but the proud passion of an emperor's love wrought in living stones. The beauty of the monument is also taken as a representation of Mumtaz Mahal's beauty, and this association leads many to describe the Taj Mahal as feminine in its appearance. It is also unique in the fact that while earlier Mughal buildings were primarily constructed of red sandstone, Shah Jahan promoted the use of white marble inlaid with semi-precious stones to fully honour his precious wife. Most spectacular feature is, of course, the mar- marble dome that sits atop the tomb, which is nearly 35 metres high and accentuated by the cylindrical drum that it sits on. Because of its shape, it's often called an onion dome, but it's decorated with a lotus design which serves to show how impressive the building is. It is a simply beautiful building, a stark white building across a fairly desert-type landscape. It is truly remarkable and stunning, covered in a variety of elaborate designs on the inside and the outside of the building. And it has stood the test of time. As we say, it is nearly 400 years old. It is a building that has continued to draw people across from across the world to see the true level of the Shah's devotion for his wife. And he was devoted to her in life and in death. The Taj Mahal is one of the greatest buildings of our time. Not only is it an architectural feat, but it is also a true statement of love, commitment and devotion. And when he died in 1666, the Shah Jahan was buried alongside his beloved wife in the Taj's white marble tomb, side by side, together for eternity. The Shah has ensured that the story of he and his wife will live throughout the ages as one of the great love stories of the world and his commissioning and the building of the Taj Mahal just further concretes that fact. It truly is the most romantic gesture of all time. Boom. Marking Boom. Up. Zach's just like, no, nah, still not buying it, still
4: shit. Um, <laughs> Wendy, please vindicate her. That was amazing absolutely amazing um and excellent you know that was a great presentation i'm not very big on posthumous efforts um but uh this sounds like the real deal no doubt about He's it it's not That's
14: just a big show and of display after she's died he, he he did so many things throughout his life he didn't have to give her the imperial seal he didn't right. have to have her as an advisor um right. in st- matters of state he didn't have to do anything you know this was a time when as we all know you know she was just a baby making machine woman. so she right. was a baby making machine and he still had all this affection and devotion and and you know it almost sounds like he's like like proud of her in a way like this is my wife and she is my companion and she is my advisor it's not just here's my pretty woman to look at right he's still a no,
3: I... her uterus though that's kind of a
14: mm, yeah well we have modern medicine thank the lord for that
3: <laughs> contraception yeah <laughs> as well Holmes
5: uh, I, I like this one I'm a fan I've been fortunate enough to visit visit it on a couple of occasions um yeah I don't think we need to get too bogged down with Zach's argument as well we're talking about <laughs> his gesture to that what to, to that to his to his wife you know what others thought about it and the fact they had it. otherwise I don't think I don't think irrelevant it was quite interesting though that of all the titles he bestowed on her though I mean Chief Empress, Queen of the Age, Queen of Hindustan, but also, surely all of those would have been covered by the Queen of the World title, wouldn't they? Some of them seem a little bit superfluous. Um, and having been there, it is stunning. When you, when you go up close to it, you can see all the sort of, um, it's not white that it looks. There is all sorts of jewels that are carved into it. Um, and also the minarets are either side. They were designed to be earthquake proof. So if there's an earthquake, they will fall away from the building rather than uh, fall on top of it and damage it. Um, And then the sandstone part that you mentioned as well, all around the rest of the complex, that's all in red sandstone pretty much. There's a mosque on one side, and another building on the other. But no, I, I, I really like it and I'm slightly <laughs> biased to this because I've, I've been there.
3: I'm laughing my head off because science historian Kit is furiously typing. He says, how is that earthquake proof? That's just Fred Dibner controlled destruction.
5: <laughs> Surely it's earthquake proof of the time. They, they've worked out that there could be a problem and taken measures to lessen the effect.
3: Oh, Kit's not having it. He's like, that does not constitute earthquake proof. Science historian Kit has gone nuts on that. Uh, we've had two people join us. Uh, Princess is in the house. You right, Princess?
15: I'm oh, very well. Thank you. Really well.
3: You entering tonight? Or have you just come to hang out? i
15: just come to hang out. I just finished adulting.
14: I just can say say, Marcus has become my new favourite Napoleonic historian.
15: I mean, it was a small pool, like the two of us, so I'm glad to talk
3: about yeah, she hasn't met Josh. Uh, and Alina's in the house. You right, Alina? I'm good. How are you elena Alina's been <laughs> off adulting and doing other podcasts. Uh, I have. Fun?
16: Oh my God, I've got a new BFF. He's awesome. And you're going to absolutely love it. I've got a new plan. It's very exciting.
3: Uh, whenever she says, I, I've got a plan, I panic. I'm just Does it involve Poland? Oh, uh, you've been interviewing the chap who's just got Book of the Month in the Great War Group magazine, the Lenin plot guy.
16: I have, and I've got us a. You've amazing... been trashing
3: Soviet Russia with him, haven't you, for like an hour and a half?
16: Uh, no, actually, funnily enough, I have not. But, but, I have got us an absolute amazing uh, first hand account of a journalist for some really amazing stuff he's done. So look out for that. Boom. All right, then. Uh, so
3: what you two missed was that before Lockie, Beth and Charlie could do their pitches... I
15: just get some other messages? That Zach was an absolute bastard and has been <laughs> destroying everyone's evening and no one likes him anymore. Because I've had a lot of messages this evening I've been trying to teach and it's just been going, Zach's up!
7: what, <laughs> yeah, Lockie's <got> a <laughs>
15: what that do you mean to
3: fuck you Zach <laughs> with a picture of a finger yeah uh, but pretty much you want to be in the pub the real pub next time we all get together Because I reckon if this
15: was non-virtual Lockie looks like he would have glassed up don't know what's happened <laughs> <but>.
3: yeah <laughs> It remained in the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, and if this was a real pub, they would have gone outside. Well, Lockie would have dragged Zack outside, yeah, and I mean, Lockie Lockie probably I would have punched him once. <laughs> Clive says, "Team Zack uh, <laughs> Lockie would have punched him once, but and then walked away. But Beth would remain repeatedly stamping on him with her heels. Is where this would have been. Yeah,
14: in 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 the groin
3: area.
8: <laughs> yeah,
15: <laughs> I mean, at least him is something he uses, Beth.
3: Oh everybody's taking sides. (laughs) Team Beth (laughs) Clive has joined Team Zach and uh Marcus Marcus uh is too proud of his groin area so he's joining (laughs) TeamSec to make sure it doesn't get stabbed on. Right. Holmes loves it, Wendy loves it. Let's go to let's go to the last person that Zach scratched. Charlie girly SWAT, you'll have an argument. (laughs) Take him down, right?
6: I'm 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 here to take him down, but I'm not going to. I'm not going to hate on Zach. I'm just going to bring him lots of love. You're going to bring him over to romantic. Uh, yeah. You know, you're
3: doing the, I don't hate you, Zach. I pity you because you're lonely. I'm just disappointed. <laughs>
6: <Yeah>. um, <laughs> first of
3: all, because uh, I will ask Marcus and Alina this as well. Before everyone does their pitch, they've been sharing their worst date stories. Uh, and it turns out that Chris is actually the worst date someone else had. And he described <laughs> it for us, how he basically took her to a prison museum <laughs> and then tried to take her to a sex show. Uh, and she ran away. Uh, but anyway, you you have to yeah, Marcus, you have to married to me. The details. You married him? Oh yeah, she married him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but that didn't end too well. But there are three beautiful children, <laughs> three lovely, lovely children who we adore on History Hack. Charlie, tell us about your worst date.
6: Okay, I I was thinking about it. I I've got a very selective memory, so I can't remember any any bad dates. I'm a serial monogamist so i i spoke a couple of weeks ago about my first date with chris when we ended up in a bar and there was a drunk guy at the end of the bar and he said you guys are going to get married i'm going to dance at your wedding it was all very very romantic it rained that london rain you know and kissing it it's beautiful but we actually had an unofficial first date before that first date we'd already got that one booked in you see and then chris called me and said a friend of mine has a band and they're playing tonight. Do you want to go and see them? Of course. Great. So I get myself dolled up. I've got a hooky Dior handbag. I'm all ready to go. And we go to see a band at a pub called the Spread Eagle. And the band were called Gob Sausage. And <laughs> they consisted of two strippers and a guy in a gimp mask screaming. Um, so our reaction was very much the same in that we both burst into uncontrollable awkward laughter and I thought, yeah, this this is this this is good.
12: And Dorman's here thinking no one's ever seen him live before before. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, if he's any consolation, problem. that's not the worst band name I've heard. <laughs>
3: uh, I just love it that Marcus has been in the pub for about five minutes and everyone just remembers why they hate him. <laughs> and he does not give a shit.
5: But, I mean but to be to be fair, Bucks Fizz got, as they became got a lot better after Cheryl Baker job.
2: <laughs> Did that Charlie. band offer to play at your wedding as well, Charlie? <laughs> <Yeah. The laughs> guy I, think they,
6: I think they got they actually got banned from performing live because of um behaviour. <laughs>
2: By the Geneva Convention? Or...
6: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
6: if the Geneva Convention could do anything for humanity, it would be, it would be silencing God's sausage. <laughs> That's
0: quite important.
15: If the Geneva Convention could do anything.
13: Yeah.
6: Charlie's just
15: off for unrestricted warfare, like straight off and uh, brutalising prisoners. All I, right. could,
13: I could deal
6: with unrestricted <laughs> warfare and abuse of prisoners if I didn't have to listen to that. That was bad so
15: i teach on wednesdays but blimey charlie's <laughs> just like throwing this out of the way united nations bastards
6: it's <laughs> not the music out god i miss live music i'd even go and see gob sausage now yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anything anything um okay so yeah zach i love you i don't hate you i don't want to beat you up um So I want to call on the judges to remember that the brief for tonight's episode is the greatest romantic gesture and not the greatest romance in history, because we already did that. We did that a few weeks ago. We did history's greatest romance, which you may or may not recall that I won with Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. Just FYI, just putting it out there. So tonight I have a little Burton link, as I think he might be my lucky charm. And Zach, don't come for Richard Burton. Leave him alone. For the judges' consideration tonight, I bring you King Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn. Now, don't come at me about this, because it's not how the relationship played out. Funnily enough, there were plenty of hard times, alcohol abuse and violence in the Burton-Taylor marriage, which we glossed over for the romance of their passion. When you won, yeah? Which I won. Yeah. (laughs) It was a good day. That was a good episode. Listen back to that. (laughs) This is about the lengths that Henry went to to get his girl. When Anne Boleyn came to court in 1522, Henry had been married to Queen Catherine of Aragon for 13 years. She had given him a daughter, but no surviving sons. In fact, the details of Catherine's miscarriages and stillbirths, plus the death in infancy of the little Prince of Wales, make for really sorry. None of this was Catherine's fault, And it could also be argued that it wasn't Henry's either, except for, you know, well, Tudor's. However, Henry was convinced that there must be someone to blame and there must be a divine reason why he had no son to carry on after him. Enter Anne. She didn't catch the king's eye until around 1526. Henry had been having an affair with her sister And various accounts equally describe Anne as a beauty and not a beauty. But what they seem to agree upon is that she had something. She was witty, intelligent and an excellent horsewoman, which made her the ideal courtier. When she captured Henry's heart, she could really have had it stuffed and mounted. Anne was no fool, though. She didn't give herself up to the king on his first request. In fact, Hilary Mantel, and I'm bringing her in because sometimes the fiction is better than the truth. She wrote in Wolf Hall that Anne sold her body an inch at a time, and I adore that imagery. She gave him just enough to hook him before she reeled him in. Henry was a love-struck schoolboy again. He wrote her love letters, many of which survive to this day. Uh, He talked about wanting to kiss her little duckies, which is super romantic. He may or may not have written the song Greensleeves for her. And my friends, where would we be today without that tune? How would we know when the ice cream van was coming? Honestly, imagine a world without ice cream. But the letters, the music, the endless gifts of jewellery are not the romantic gesture that I want to submit as history's greatest. No, Henry went to far greater lengths to get his girl. He was still married, remember? Because Anne was unwilling to become his mistress, Henry had to find a way to make her his wife. In order to do this, he put his wife on trial and accused her of not being a virgin when they married. You see, Catherine had been wife to Henry's elder brother, Prince Arthur, before he died suddenly and tragically young, Tudor's Henry married Catherine because he wanted to, after a papal dispensation which said that absolutely in no way had a 15-year-old boy and a 16-year-old girl married and put to bed together had sex in the two or three months that they were living together before he fell ill. Thank goodness for the famously low sex drive of teenagers. The trial of an anointed queen, so beloved of the English as Catherine was, made Henry a little bit unpopular, but he was Ahab in pursuit of his Moby Dick and needs must. All Henry wanted in 1527 was an annulment of his marriage. It wasn't much to ask. Catherine should just admit that she was his brother's bedded wife, piss off to a nunnery, let him declare their daughter Mary illegitimate and remarry Anne. This became known as the King's great matter. Nothing really went the way that Henry had planned it though. The outcome of his show trial said that he could annul his marriage, but the Pope said, oh no, you don't and demanded that he wait until a decision had been made in Rome before he try and marry again. At the time, the Pope was under a sort of house arrest by the emperor of Spain, Catherine's nephew, who did not really like the way that his aunt was being treated. The Pope's ruling was going to be held up, but Henry loved Anne so much that he ignored the Pope. In November 1532, he married Anne in secret, got to marital business and then remarried her in another secret ceremony months later when she fell pregnant in May 1533. Now okay, perhaps this is not part of the most romantic gesture in history, but I think that maybe that first secret marriage Might have been a phony one to get her in bed. I've got no proof here. It's just a thought. When she did her job of conceiving his heir, it suddenly became important to have another secret marriage. Hmm. Hmm. But back to romantic gestures. So far we have the letters, green sleeves, ice cream, jewellery, and the banishment of his actual wife and daughter while we wait on Rome for a ruling. It's all pretty standard Valentine's fluff. Thomas Cromwell had been busily beavering away on the king's orders to find a way out of his marriage. And in 1532, he finally nailed it. He presented a bill to Parliament which declared the king's supremacy over the church, which began the break of England with Rome. In June 1533, Anne was crowned queen with the crown of St. Edward, which is usually reserved for monarchs um, placed upon her head, But given that she was heavily pregnant at the time, it was just assumed that the Prince of Wales was kind of inside her. So they were um, crowning uh, an heir at the same time. In 1534, Henry was excommunicated by the Pope. Never before in history has a romantic gesture been so grand as to establish an entirely new church in a country. Yes, things may have gone sour between Henry and Anne in record time, and she may have only sat on the throne for about a thousand days, but the gesture is what I humbly submit, and if I place tonight, I will indeed be the most happy. Thank you.
3: Very well done. Zach, have you had your mind changed?
7: I was kind of won over by the ice cream thing, if that helps.
3: You're still way back on the ice cream van part. Oh
7: yeah, yeah, no, that was, that was the most convincing part of it for me. Sorry, Charlie. All of, I mean, in fairness, Beth, Charlie, Lockie, you're all put together decent. I don't even know if Lockie's still in the room. He seems to have stormed off in.
8: <laughs> <Yeah>. um,
3: <laughs> oh no, he's back really good
7: cases, but I'm, I'm not sorry for being a cynic about the whole romance thing. I'm...
3: Yeah. I think what Lockie's hand gesture is saying is I can hear every word you're saying, mofo. zach does not seem slightly perturbed about the very giant enemy that he's made wendy what do you make of this one
4: you know i wasn't won over by the ice cream argument because our ice cream trucks don't play that song um they at least not where i live they usually play something mexican is all i'm going to say about that um i don't know what songs they play um I don't think of this as romantic. I just don't. Um, I think of it as dominance and um, having to have what he wants. Not buying it. Sorry. Holmes, are you buying it?
5: No, no. I, I was more moved by Man United West Ham last night, to be honest. Um,
3: <laughs> How did that end in the end? Did it end? Is it still going on? It,
5: it ended in disappointment for those of us that sat through about 100 minutes desperately hoping for penalties. And then uh, Man United scored. Terrible. Oh, cool. um, no, I'm not, I'm not a fan of Henry VIII, as I've said on here before. I think the Tudors are overrated. They're actually Massively. quite popular. Massively.
13: Massively.
5: Um, had he not had all the wives subsequent to Anne, I, I could, it'd be a bit more persuasive, but I mean, I think he's just, you know, he's a man-child in the middle of a middle middle mid-life crisis. And it just did not because I, he just wanted to sleep with her, basically. Mm. You know, have they all lived happily uh, ever?
6: Aha, uh-huh. Okay, I'm I'm completely with you, and you know I there is no love love lost between the Tudors and I at all. But could we not argue that all of the um, the submissions are because someone wanted to get laid? There is always that. Not element. mine. She was dead. He was dead. <laughs> way you say that,
3: like,
12: victory. Mine wasn't either, it's that <laughs> pure look. <love>, so... <laughs> no. well,
5: but not necessarily, because, I mean, Kate's, for example, they were already married anyway, it's her birthday. I presume they could right. whenever they wanted to,
8: you know. Yeah, <laughs> they'd already got a child, so they were definitely getting some action. No, in fact, I think two children.
5: And by the sounds of it, even Clive's captain and the ballerina were at
10: it occasionally. <laughs> Mine weren't together. It was she, she dumped him.
3: Right, okay. We've got two left, people. Uh, I'm going to go to Alina first, um, because she's... I, I just don't... Alina, I love you, but I'm going to let Kit go last instead of you, because you're probably going to depress us, right? You're going
16: to depress us? Why would you do this to me when I have a mouthful of food every fucking time?
3: Well, it's just a reoccurring theme that you have a mouthful of food. It's not... <laughs> my fault. If you didn't bring the munchies out for down the pub, tell us first about your
16: worst ever date. Uh,
4: do
16: you know what? My mother listens to this, so I've had to not talk about. It. So I'm going to do my set, my second worst date because the oh, first one is involved, that because you
3: put out on the worst one. Sorry, Alina's mum.
16: It involves. Well, I'm a virgin, Mum. Remember, okay. I am a virgin, <laughs> a 34 year old virgin. So do remember that. Anyway, no. So my first, my first worst date. So it was in Camden back in the day when I was proper into Camden and everything else. And I thought I'd be super cool and turn off on the motorbike as you do. <laughs> so first of all, he wasn't impressed. So that should have been my first flag. You're a clear wanker. Um, I turned up and I had this deal with a friend of mine that if I text her, an emoji she would call me and tell me that there's like a massive emergency and I've got to go home because somebody's ended up in hospital which is you know as you do so we're sitting in the pub and I'm like this guy is so fucking boring like my life is now over and I'm messaging emojis to my friend she's not ringing I'm messaging more emojis I'm like come on Jesus just ring me she finally rings me and gets me out of that day I think it was the most boring thing I've ever done in my life Is it more boring
3: than Das Boot?
16: I've not even
3: watched it. I might fall asleep. Right, okay. Tell us the most romantic
16: gesture in history. Right, well, unfortunately, my original choice has apparently been disproven and been told that it's a lie. By other his- I'm still going to go with it because it is kind of cool. Otherwise, I was going to tell you about my grandparents. And I know Zach can't be mean. So I don't know, Alex, what should I do? A couple of lines about my grandparents and uh, make Zach have to suffer it. Or the false story. Uh, this makes Zach suffer just because it- Lockie's
3: really angry and it's funny. Because
16: Zach can't-, he can't be judgmental. It's my grandparents and they were the most amazing people and the most influential people in my life. So um, as some of you guys, I don't know if you guys know, so my grandfather fought in the Warsaw Uprising and he ended up in a prisoner of war camp. He got liberated by the Americans. And when he got liberated by the Americans, he ended up working for General uh, al Um and basically he ended up like having to help and translations and blah, blah, blah. And he was hanging out with his friends one day and he looked across and uh, he saw this incredibly beautiful woman standing helping um, ladle on food because, you know, obviously they were all in kind of displacement camps at this point. And, you know, his Warsaw Uprising mates, you know, typical lads, well, Polish lads, as you do. And they, um, he turned around he said, um, pointed at her, I'm going to marry that woman. They laughed at him. He had the last laugh. He married her. So that is my little romantic story just to piss Zach off. Oh, uh, Kit is furiously.
3: No, it wasn't Wojciech the Bear Kit. (laughs) 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 Uh, And do not read the first one. No, (laughs) I won't. Uh, Because, no, that will really get her in trouble with her mum. Right, Wendy, are you moved by this Polish love story?
4: It's a lovely story, although I can almost top it. Are you ready? Go on my father was a resident physician at Lenox Hill hospital in New York. And my mother was a nursing student and he walked down the hall past her and she looked over and said, there he is. That's the guy. And he asked her out on a date and she went on a date and he proposed on their first date and they got married six weeks later. And when my mother died, they had been married for 54 years. The end.
3: So you just beaten Alina with your own story. Sorry Alina. Yeah. <laughs> That's they're both nice. lovely, Holmes. Tell them they're both lovely.
5: They're, they're both lovely, but they're a bit I mean, it's quite a low bar if we're including our own grandparents. I mean, they <laughs> haven't met with the beer anyway, so yeah. Oh, oh, I, I can, can
16: tell you parents, parents, the full... so That's even lower. <laughs> I can do the full story, homes if you like. That is a depressing story.
5: Yeah, not. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah.
8: No,
5: I mean, no. No, uh, yeah. <laughs> it
3: doesn't change the fact that it's just our grandparents. It oh, right. Well done, Alina. It is a nice story. I, I just is. hope that you weren't here, but I still... Oh, man, I was like, Beth knew Beth knew that hers would be up there, but I don't think anyone expected Dorman to smash it out of the park with uh, 150 rampant gay couples. Rampantly military, not like, orgy. But anyway, <laughs> we've got one more to do. Before Marcus gets excited at the thought of that, uh, with Kit, Kit, tell us about your worst date ever. Um,
9: I, I was almost going to go with a story about um, about someone who who got fired for drawing sexual cartoons of me at work, but uh, oh, it's not your yeah. really date. <laughs> yeah. um, that is quite so creepy. It, it, very creepy. Um, yeah, uh, no. So I was living in Essex, uh, just outside London, and I met this this rather lovely blonde girl who. Who wasn't that bright, I'll be honest, um, I remember having a chat with her and uh, and she suddenly suddenly shot up in the middle of the of, of the conversation and went, "Oh my god, I've just realized the circle line's called a circle be- circular line because it's circular and and I just looked at her and went, "Why did you think it was called the circle line and she went because it's yellow um, anyway she wasn't that smart, but I thought she was um, possibly a good date. Um, so I asked her out and obviously I I kind of, I, you know, I was very said, you know, there's a movie that I kind of want to see. Um, you know, I'm looking for some company. Would you like to come along? And she went, I've got a great idea. Fantastic. Yep. See you at seven o'clock tonight. Be there. You know, gave, gave the details of where to meet up. And so I arrived at seven o'clock and there's no sign of the girl. Um, there's, uh, this is this is just outside of basildon there's a big multiplex there's there's very few people around there's just a, a very shy awkward looking guy in, in glasses looks a bit like Zach to be honest um uh, I don't think it was Zach um but uh you know looks like, looks like Zach yeah uh, shy guy with glasses and eventually he he sort of walks up and he goes are, are you kit and and I go yes and he went um uh i'm I'm your date for tonight and And she had misunderstood what I was saying, and she thought I was gay and was setting me up with her brother laughing
3: at him
9: We oh had God. a very nice time um watching the movie. I think it was Captain America, the first Avenger, <laughs> if I remember rightly um and uh, and and then we had some food afterwards, and I said you know thanks, thanks very much and uh, and sort of extricated myself from the situation was
4: he not was he
3: hot well oh bless you for going through with it though for the sake of oh, what, what
9: else do you do you don't go oh, i'm really sorry but uh yeah no oh, <laughs> you you're
3: a gentleman that reminds me of when my brother thought it'd be re- well all the other bartenders thought it'd be really funny to make my brother um flirt with this very large, very ugly girl all night long. And uh she gave so she was hanging over the bar chatting to him. She thought she'd pulled, it was the best night of her life. She gave her a number and I said to him, if you make her cry, you're fucking fired. Or oh, what you've got to, you've got to give her your number. You've got to play this out to the end now. She's going home with a smile on her face. You're not gonna she's not gonna be the butt of your joke. So you better fucking fake it. I don't care if you don't meet her any, uh, ever again, but she's leaving this bar tonight happy. So my brother had to stand there and flirt with her all night and everyone laughed at him and he got what he deserved. Moral of the story. But tell us, Kit, about the most romantic gesture in history.
9: So I'm going to go with uh, an English king who is incredibly misunderstood, often sort of portrayed as the bad guy, probably because Mel Gibson set him up that way. It is Edward I, Longshanks Hammer of ah. the Scots.
3: Excellent. And
9: Not someone you would <laughs> typically think of as, as a romantic type and yet he married Eleanor of Castile and the two were smitten with each other. They were so in love that they actually went on crusade together. Um, there is a story about him being shot with a poison arrow from an assassin and her bending down and sucking out the poison to save his life. Probably not, uh, not, not real, but it goes to show the devotion they had. Um, they, Copulated all the time. Um, uh, they actually had a daughter, Joan, uh, in the in the Holy Land before they came back to the U.K. to England. Now, they had a little, a lot of fun games they liked to do, romantic little games they liked to play. Um, every Easter Monday, Edward would deliberately let Eleanor's handmaidens um, capture him and tie him to the bed, um, and then he would pay them a fake ransom um, so that he could escape. Uh, to his wife's bedchamber um, so they were kind of doing a little bit of, of gender play a little bit of role reversals um, in, and having a good time of it there was a very famous uh, incident uh, there was a wedding of Earl Marshal roger bygod um, and eleanor knew that her husband couldn't stand weddings he just hated them so she deliberately paid for a band uh, to uh, to be set up in a spare empty room so that he could go and have dinner on his own listen to some music while the wedding's going off and the king would still be entertained. So she kind of knew her husband. She sort of worked around his little quirks, um, but they were very much in love, and they lived together for 37 years. Now, the sad story is that Eleanor passes away. She dies, um, very similar to the Taj Mahal, and Edward is grief-struck. He begins a funeral procession uh, all the way from North Nottinghamshire down to London uh, to be buried, where she will be buried. It takes 12 days to reach the capital and he never forgets that trip because the next year he orders the erection of the Eleanor crosses. Every time the funeral procession stopped for the night at each location a cross has been erected so uh, there's crosses in Nottinghamshire, um, there's Stony Stratford in Buckinghamshire, Woburn and Dunstable in Bedfordshire, St Albans, uh, Cheapside in London and the final one which many people will be familiar with, is Charing Cross in London, which is just outside Westminster, kind of near Trafalgar Square. Now, these crosses were incredibly ornate. They were dedicated love memorials to his wife. Um, It was incredibly expensive at the time, of course. This was master builders. He got arts and craftsmen from all over to come and do the work. These memorials, many of them still exist to this day, and many of them are used by other couples to meet up. Um, And nearby so they can go on dates too. particularly, of course, Charing Cross outside Charing Cross Station. The interesting thing is that this isn't just a memorial to his wife. This isn't just a, a tomb. It is also a gesture of eternal affection because each of the crosses asks passers by to pray for her soul. He wanted her to be remembered throughout time and for people to constantly pray for her so that she could have a happy afterlife with him. His heart, her heart was actually removed from her body. Uh, This was a relatively standard practice at the time and was contained in a pillar of a chapel down by Blackfriars uh, where the couple uh, would pray together. So he was incredibly dedicated to his wife. And the important thing to remember is that in the Middle Ages, there were lots of intermarriages and constantly marriages were for diplomatic purposes. While this certainly was the case when those two married, it was predominantly to secure uh, Gascony. Um, later on Edward deliberately delayed marrying for almost 10 years, which for a medieval king is incredibly um, surprising, particularly because obviously, as I say, it was, it was predominantly not for love that he married again. So yes, he did have a second wife afterwards, but it was just to secure his kingdom. His true heart always remained with Eleanor, and we know this from letters he wrote to Cluny Abbey, um, which indicate that incredibly sweetly. Um, for whom living we dearly cherished, and whom dead we cannot cease to love.
3: Oh, that you know what? That was my choice if I was going to do when I was going to do the Eleanor crosses. Uh, and of course, if you want to see, they were all wooden, so they're all gone. Uh, but there is a stone copy of the wooden one outside Charing Cross Station. So yeah, you can still see it in a way. But uh, yeah, that's the one I was going to do. Wendy, are you? That crossing? was
4: beautiful. Another. St- I'm a little weepy. Um That's a story that I had not heard ever before either. Americans don't hear good stories Um unless there are saddles involved. And uh, <laughs> that that was lovely.
3: <laughs> next time you're here, I'm going to see it. Blazing saddles, yeah. I'm going to see uh, cool. uh, the Ellen across next time you're here. Okay. You and John. And then there's an awesome cocktail bar with a 1940s theme. It's supposed to be an underground station called Cahoots, just up the road, and we'll go and get trashed after. But anyway. Shikes, Some, uh, someday we'll be expected. allowed back
4: in there. Someday we'll be allowed back there. One day. Not today. One day,
3: yeah. we'll play, it, And we will joyfully, Marcus, pay extortionate prices for cocktails uh, because we'll be allowed out of the house, and it'll be exciting. Has anyone seen the meme going, or the little video gif going around today of the um, hyperactive guinea pig on its way to the pub? where it's shrieking out its order of everything it's going to buy. And it's like, it's <laughs> really high pitched voice, like, going, okay? and it's like on my way to the pub the first day they reopen. Uh But Holmes. No,
5: I, I like that one. I, I heard it before. I didn't realise it was Edward the first, though. That slipped my mind. And the, the one question I, I did have was, can you still see them now? And you've already answered that. So
9: um
5: that's it for me. But uh, yeah, that's, that's that's a contender.
9: Is Banbury Cross one of them? I don't think Banbury Cross is. I was, just, I was just having a look at the actual ones. So uh, Lincoln, Grantham, Stamford, Gettington, Hardingston, Stony Stratford, Woburn, Dunstable, St Albans, Waltham, uh, Cheapside and Charing Cross. Are the other twelve are the crosses?
5: That's a that's a really slightly obscure r- route. They're obviously trying to avoid motorways or A roads.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Ways has gone crazy on them on that journey. No, I really like that one. Right, I think we have done all of them because uh, Princess is just hanging out. Uh, and we are done. So, uh give our judges a little bit of time to ponder who their top threes will be. Uh, because Wendy's doing Zoom on her phone, they will do them separately. In the meantime, we'll go around the room and find out who everyone would have gone for if they couldn't have theirs. But before I do that, I'm looking at Marcus Princess. Your worst date ever. Can we do that? I
15: really ever done that? No, we haven't. I haven't really ever done that whole dating thing. I'm afraid. You subscribe so I don't
3: really to Dorman's a... method of dating.
15: Yeah, well, I think it was probably the time that Guy took me to a, a sex museum. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that.
8: <laughs> the one in Prague? There's a great one um, in no, Prague, I... yeah, go there.
15: Oh, I've been to one in Amsterdam, that's just fucked up.
8: No, the one in Prague is immense. it's really, sort of, really good. It's good in a good way. I didn't realise call calling so,
5: everything sex museums now, in which case I've been to loads over the years in Amsterdam. <laughs> well
12: the, the one I want to know which has one
3: Chris, um, Chris took
12: yeah.
3: us <laughs> No, to no it was just a triple x show and he um... joked he went oh fancy a movie and she didn't find it funny but then she married and
15: she got the last laugh <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> three beautiful children Chris there's three beautiful children cling to that right okay yeah. let's go around the room yeah. then and find out uh, which one everyone would have gone for if they couldn't have their own Charlie
6: Oh do you know what it's it's been it's been really good tonight I love Chris's love story and it's got such a hopeful end to it and I hope that she loves her valentine's card but um Kit just swayed me because I love the story of the Eleanor Crosses it's one I thought of doing but then I thought oh but that's all after she was dead and uh so I decided to go after Anne Boleyn but I love that such a nice story. Yeah, I de- that was the one I was going to do,
3: but I, if, if anyone has sold me on something I knew nothing about tonight, then it's Dorman. Um, but Dorman, who would you have gone for?
2: To be honest, I'd go for Kid as well, because I only know Longshanks as, you know, Hammer of the Scots, Crusader Knight, everything like that. I didn't realise he was such a soft What's that kid. line in
3: Braveheart? The problem with Scotland is that it's full of Scots?
2: Yeah, I mean, yeah. similar things have been said about where I'm from. Um, but you know there's a lot of those
15: memes doing around since the rugby last week actually Braveheart <laughs> memes have been brought around
3: go on then yeah. Dorman So you go for Kit I think Kit yep Marcus you've only heard about two of them who are you going for
15: yeah I've only heard about two of them but I've been getting running updates from um, three people tonight so I, though I didn't hear the pitch I think I'm going to have to go with um, oh, Hamlet's got so much because I really want Braveheart to now come to not be the good guy because uh, it's such a bad like film. But yeah, I just like Dorman's idea of going off the wall for Thebian uh sacred bands. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's quite that's pretty unusual. So therefore I'm I'm looking forward to listening to this back. So I'm putting a pin in that and and kind of like p- putting it in pencil. I think that's the one to go for.
13: Kate? Um, I don't know. Um, I really like the Life for Brian one because it's funny. Um yeah, I liked Kit's one. I like Dorman's. Yeah, I don't think I could choose. Not, not one overall. Good job, you're not judging then. Uh,
3: <laughs> let's <Yeah>. go with <laughs> James. Who I have to say, James, your little screen saver picture thing is unnerving me because it looks like you're trying to start a fight. <laughs>
12: <laughs> uh, no, I just thought it needed changing, and that was the closest one I had to hand. Um, I think I have to go for Kit's one on the Eleanor Crosses because I did forget that part of the story. I knew they were quite romantic together, but I forgot that ending of the story. So I think it has to be them because it is another side to long shanks that people forget about or don't have a perception of because of
3: no, that good god-awful goodness. movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Beth is looking distinctly pissed off. Beth.
14: I should be winning. This is not fair. <laughs> uh, <laughs> can you tell i'm a sore loser <laughs> um oh you know what that yeah i really i really like dormant's as well i think that was really really different and really inventive so yeah dormant as well
16: alina uh, the ones you've heard i wasn't lucky as marcus nobody gave me any updates so i feel a bit left out there um do you know what I'm going to be really nice and kind to one person in this room because they deserve a lot of, lot of love today. So I think Zach should choose for me.
3: <laughs>
10: <laughs> what? So now
16: Zach's got
3: to pick two that he really likes now.
7: For me, I have to go for uh, my fellow cynic in the room uh, and the great Cockney impressionist that is Clive. <laughs> On behalf of no. Alina... Oh. <sighs> I kind of feel and this is going to stick in my throat saying this I kind of feel Alina would probably be drawn towards Beth and the Taj Mahal
3: She would because the person dies and she's a misery So <laughs> Alina that- would definitely go for one where it all ends in tears and death um, And
0: She, she wouldn't would go for absolutely. the World War 2 one?
3: <laughs> no I reckon she'd end up weeping like a saddo about the, uh, the Taj Mahal as well I reckon you're right Thank you <laughs> Merrin
8: so I, I have a uh, there's a weird thing going on here because my daughter was born in the Luton and Dunstable hospital and if her dad had had his way she'd have been called Balana after Balana Torres <laughs> and and I said that the only thing I wanted was that she had a brave heart and she would be called Eleanor so it's got to be okay sorry It's
3: yeah. As- your daughter is early isn't she
8: he is Eleanor? Yeah, Ellie.
3: Okay, uh, Beth. Are we done? Um, done that? do lucky Lockie. He still looks like he's, he's going to fight someone. <laughs> yeah,
1: you know, that's just my. <laughs> normal whoever factor.
3: whoever gets in front of him <laughs> on the way to the toilet is going to get punched in this pub.
1: Oh, my, my, my girlfriend's sister's staying over, so that could end up being her. <laughs> yeah. Um, I I'm, I'm like you actually, Alex. You know, I I, I could possibly have gone with the ellen crosses because i I, it's a story i know and i I like um so i'm I'm sort of minded to go with that actually it's it's a nice one
0: clive i came along here expecting to hear lots of cynical stuff and i've been absolutely bowled over by all the soppy stuff left me with a real flavor of sick in my mouth Then Dorman came on and I thought, thank goodness for that. A little bit of relief, but, and I was going to go for Dorman and then Zach came on and absolutely knocked it out of the park. So I would go with that, whatever Zach went for, which I'm not sure what it was.
3: I, I don't, I don't know what it was, but I liked it, uh, which means that Zach is level with Beck and Beth is raging. Uh, Chris?
10: Um, I'm probably going to go for Kit, um, and Edward the first, but not for the, for the soppy crosses. Uh, the couple that crusade together, stay together. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that Kit's just been sitting there blithely adding hair to his severed head and wasn't even <laughs> going to enter and wasn't really going to turn up. And he's just swept in. Uh, right, have we checked with everyone? Yes. Right, OK. Who's going to go first,
9: judges?
5: Hang on, I think Kit. You haven't checked with Kit.
9: Oh, Kit, who that would you go it's fine it's fine. Um no I I um I was thinking about uh, the Theban sacred band a little bit because uh, they're mentioned in Plato's Symposium uh, as an army of lovers. Um and then I was reminded that there's a song by Lee Ryan of blue called Army of Lovers. Um, and I just thought oh, fuck that. So I'm going to go with Beth because if I don't she's probably going to sock me one.
3: Yeah. Um and also as well James is getting really irate down the bottom there because everyone's forgotten about Harry Welsh um and his parachute uh let's
4: see if the judges forgot about it which one's going to go first go on wendy in fact have not forgotten about harry welsh and the silk parachute i found that story enormously compelling um so many of these are such incredibly grand gestures but there was so much danger and so much uh, i don't know um I i loved james's story and that would get my choice no way. Oh, coming out of
3: left. Field. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> He's all smug now. It's a good job his videos turned off or oh, Beth would like For
4: archaeologists.
3: Beth's only 10 miles away from him. She will get in. She will Get in the car and make Don drive her over there.
12: And no, drive. Beth's been a great support for the past few weeks. So punch him in the face.
3: Yeah, that was Beth. The, also, the nice. Beth, that
4: can be a support. You, and punch him in the face. So. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Beth gets huge points for presentation and and thoroughness. That was an amazing description. There were so uh, there when I thought that I knew things about the Taj Mahal, I didn't. I knew nothing. Um, this was amazing. I'm I, still going. You ready for me? Yep, go for it.
5: Um, I'll, I'll tell you my top three in reverse order, but I think before I do so, I mean, Kit came up. Kit's in third place.
3: Mm. Before that, I
5: had Kate in third place because I thought that was quite a nice story. And it sort of followed a pattern over the last few weeks where Kate is doing quite well. She's in, until we get about halfway through or towards the end and then all of a sudden drops away, which is a bit of a shame, but hopefully...
3: When, we're gonna... like, okay, I promise you, Kate, you can go near the end next time.
13: Thanks, because I think sometimes you get a bit forgotten, don't you? Cause yeah. I forgot I James's, which was at the beginning. To we, back,
3: are... we will shake it up next time. Who's at number two?
5: So then I've got Dorman <laughs> and his sacred band lads at number two. It was a tough one, but I'm probably slightly biased because I've been there and I've gone for Beth.
3: Yes. 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 <laughs> yes! I don't know if it's more unbearable in defeat or victory. Yes! <laughs> yes. <laughs> take a vote on that I'm
14: happy now I can leave now bye guys
3: (laughs) 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 yes double victory double victory for the Midlands I have to say I think Dorman's hard done by I think Dorman should have won that was epic Um, and it was surprising as well that he didn't come out and shit on it but that um, in my level of cynicism I'm with Zach all the way it's all a load of bollocks Right okay that is us done for tonight. We will be back I think next week because uh, we had everyone was prepared for one we didn't end up doing so everyone's got stories hanging around so I think are we doing Most Unlikely Hero? We are doing History's Most Unlikely Hero next week Uh but we have taken a couple of weeks off Um because um, it's been tough for a lot of people in the room and I know Zach wants to finish off the show tonight.
7: Yeah stepping down from my new role as kind of pub shithead I just wanted to kind of get a little bit serious for a moment in the last couple of weeks we've had a number of people down the pub who've lost close friends and loved ones bony's friend ali has passed passed away recently alex lost john who was effectively like a dad to her and there are others in the room who have also lost people i'm not going to mention names if people don't want um, them to be kind of singled out what obviously makes this all so much worse is that very few of us have had the chance to say goodbye so I hope the rest of the pub won't mind and our listeners will join me in raising a toast to Ali, to John and to everyone that our listeners have lost. They might be gone, but they're not forgotten.
3: Yeah, the hardest thing is not stripping out the humanity of of losing someone and not being able to be with them. But yeah, we're here for you guys. Uh, We will be back next week. So join us for that.